But if you have somebody in a corrupt institution trying to do right, what they end up doing is, is dissociating from and normalizing the corruption of their institution. Just like many of us, all of us in America have normalized to some extent racism. You know, all of us to some extent are codependent with these pathological corrupt forces in the culture because we have to be. Otherwise, I couldn't live in a house and do a job and pay my taxes and uh, relate to everybody else. Um, uh, I would be frozen uh, in my protest around the corruption in the major institutions. I work against that corruption, but also I'm part of this, this culture. I'm part of this economy. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Chen. Today, Paul is excited to be talking with integrally informed psychotherapist, Dr. Keith Witt. Dr. Witt is a licensed psychologist, teacher, and author who has lived and worked in Santa Barbara, California since 1973. He is the founder of the Art and Science of Relationships, and via his website, he offers his School of Love lecture series, books, blogs, Therapist in the Wild web series, and Integral Conversations audios and videos on topics such as health, love, relationships, sexuality, spirituality, development, and psychotherapy. Author of eight books, plus three TEDx talks, Dr. Witt lectures across the USA and internationally. Hello, everybody. Get your notebooks out, clear your head, and get ready to sit with a true wise man. Keith Witt is a highly respected, world-recognized integral psychologist and a regular contributor at IntegralLife.com. I've read a few of his excellent books and listened to countless of his podcasts and interviews on audio and video, and he's really helped me live and love more fully and inspired me to be the best therapist and educator I can possibly be. Keith has an extensive background in martial arts, loves to exercise, is a father of two children, and really walks his talk. In this conversation, we talk about his life path, education, and spiritual philosophy. Then we go into his views of the challenges we face today and his opinions of Donald Trump as an integral psychologist. We finish with a comprehensive look at what love is, Keith's five stars for healthy, loving relationships, and why love always comes with pain and sacrifices. I could have talked to Keith for days without stopping, and you're about to find out why. Enjoy Keith Witt. And by the way, if you love Keith Witt as much as I do, you'll be glad to know I'll be having him back to continue our dialogue soon. Enjoy Keith Witt. Well, everybody, you're in for a very exciting and probably very deep ride today. I'm very excited to be able to share integral psychologist Keith Witt, who's somebody I've studied for quite a number of years. He's a real key player in the integral movement, uh, Ken Wilber's movement. I do a lot of my studying on integral life. So if you're not familiar with integrallife.com, I highly recommend you can find a lot of Keith's great information there. I first studied Keith's book, Loving Yourself Completely, and uh, his audio course, which was absolutely excellent. And I'm somebody who's fairly critical and has uh, enough knowledge to know where there's fluffy and stuff that I don't really like, but I found myself in very much really total harmony with his sharings there. As I said, I've been watching and listening to him on Integral Life and he's excellent. And uh, 
him and I have shared email exchanges over the years. He's uh, looked at my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, my online HLC1 course, and I have a deep, deep love and respect for your work, Keith. Welcome to Living 4D. It's wonderful to be on your show. Thank you. I found uh, seven books you've written on Amazon. Are there eight. more? Yeah, there's eight. Um, okay. So the, the, the Shadow Light, uh, my book on shadow, has a workbook called the Shadow Light Workbook. And then I have Waking Up and uh, Sessions on Integral Psychotherapy. Um, I have The Gift of Shame and the Attuned Family about a variety of topics, about developmental topics, psychotherapy topics, and uh, family dynamics. I have uh, Integral Mindfulness on Integral Mindfulness. Um, I have Loving Completely, which uh, I sent you a copy of. And then uh, I have Shadow Light and the Shadow Light Workbook. I just, uh, I've been working through your shadow light workbook. It's really well done. And, uh, personally, I find that workbook type approach helps take things from the intellect down into the body, so to speak. So we engage the material and I, I really, whenever I can find books with workbooks, I always buy the workbooks and do them because I find otherwise you can be someone who sounds really cool in a coffee shop, but your life does not emulate what you can say. (laughs) Right. You, you want to walk the walk. You want to embody the material. Yeah. You know, before we, you and I were talking previously, this just on the call here about uh, some of the kind of issues in the world, and we were going to have a dialogue about that. But what I'd love to do just to kick it off so people can get a connection to you and get more of a depth of a sense of who you are and where your viewpoints come from. Can we hear an overview of your life path, your education, your key interests for your work? And I'd love to have that wrapped up with what your spiritual philosophy is. Sure. I I was raised in the 50s and 60s. I'm 70 years old. Um, And uh, I was raised, interestingly, in a family that was a healthy family of the day. My parents were teachers. I had a couple of brothers. But um, I was a sensitive guy, and I really rebelled against the 50s and 60s culture. And my family had some dynamics in it that were quite destructive. And I went crazy at 14 and 15. And my parents wisely got us into psychotherapy. Um, I don't know how that happened, but they did. Um, And um, I was a little too far gone for family therapy. So (laughs) one day my dad... One day, my dad said, Keith, let's go look at sports cars. I said, oh, yeah, fuck you. Sure, I'll do it. And then I got in the car, our 54 Ford, stopped in front of the Wells Neuropsychiatric Clinic, and he had my suitcase packed, and I was committed, and they gave me 23 electroconvulsive therapy, uh, therapy sessions over the next five weeks. That's wild. And, uh, it's wild. It, it, was a, it was a death and rebirth experience. And as I discovered many years later, often in a tribe, the shaman um, – when they're young, go through a death and rebirth experience into their new self. And um, in that hospital during that time, I decided I needed to choose directions for my life. And I chose the warrior and the healer. And so I started studying martial arts and psychotherapy and never looked back. And three years later, I had my black belt in Shotokan Karate. And 10 years later, I had my first license. That's awesome. And what schools of psychology did you study? And I, I know you have a wide, wide breadth of psychological knowledge from all my studies of you and your work, but uh, what, what uh, path did you take in psychology? In, the, in those days, there were um, these divisions. The 20th century is all about silos and divisions. 
there were the behaviorists who were contemptuous of the analysts. And then there mm-hmm. were the analysts who were contemptuous of the humanists, who were contemptuous of the behaviorists, who were contemptuous of the cognitive theorists. Um, and the Freudians. <laughs> and yeah, the Freudians were contemptuous of the Jungians, were contemptuous of Adler stuff. Yeah. And, and it was pretty clear to me um, as a young man that the only time that I got pissed off was when people were dissing the other systems. I found all the systems to be to have worth, and they all felt naturally uh, uh, came together to to me in different forms. Um, you know, some people are just born to think cross paradigmatically. That was that was me, uh, and uh, I was doing that for a long time until I discovered the integral epistemology, which is basically a, a meta theory that that organizes cross paradigmatic systems. And so for me, I, I felt like I had a mission, I was discovering in the 70s, to bring certain things into the field of psychotherapy. It was a very pluralistic and anti-masculine system in those days, and I was a warrior. And so I felt I was gonna, my job was to bring the warrior into psychotherapy, in the practice of it and the teaching of it. I spent a lot of time teaching and psychotherapy and, um, and um, training psychotherapists in the 70s, went into private practice. Had a family, um, wrote some books, um, and then discovered uh, integral psycho- psychology and, and integral studies in my 40s. Um, and uh, just about that time, my son was going away to college. Uh, I'd spent a lot of the time uh, when my kids were growing up, growing up with them. I did psychotherapy and I danced. I was a tap dancer. I was a martial artist. I was a surfer. I had a rock and roll band. I had a lot of fun. And I did some writing, but not much. When I discovered integral um, studies, uh, integral is, is a is a it's not a theory. It's an it's a meta theory. It's a way to organize knowledge and behavior and spirituality and science. And uh, learning it changed me. Um, it's the kind of system if you take it into your heart, it's a it's a psychoactive system. You're not the same afterwards. And so it had that impact on me. And as that happened, as I began to organize my understanding, there were forms, psychotherapy forms, um, developmental forms, spiritual forms. Um, I had been doing Zazen meditation since I was 15 with Shotokan Karate, and then I had done some other meditations. I studied with a Taoist priest between 78 and 81, learning his healing system and doing the meditations and the yogas. and so it got that there I always knew that 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 empiricism and pure spirituality were connected that there was an integrating framework where they fit together um and the integral epistemology which puts pure phenomenology and 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 pure spirituality on one side and pure empiricism on the other and has a framework that organizes um, both of them um it was like coming home uh, and a lot of people have had that experience and so I went to the first integral psychotherapy conference with a, um, uh, a book that I'd written on integral psycho, uh, sex therapy, met Ken Wilber, and and realized that there weren't books at that time written on integral psychotherapy. And I went home from that first conference in 2004 and spent the next 12, 18 months writing my book, Waking Up, on integral psychotherapy. And I was just surrendered to it. I dreamt about the material every night. Uh, you know, wrote down my insights, uh, 
you know, finished the book, sent it to Ken. It was a little bit surprising to get a 400-page book from someone you don't know that well. And, <laughs> and then, and then I, after that, uh, started teaching, uh, you know, did all the stuff that most of us do. Um, and, you know, when you, when you start stepping up, it challenges your psychology. It challenges you to find your own blind spots and to work on them. And for me, it renewed my interest in in that particular process. And, and, and I got into, found a therapist. I had to look around the country to find somebody to work with. And and uh, and then surrendered to the process. It's a long time ago. And it's led me to a lot of different places. Um, now, originally in the 70s, uh, one of the insights that I had when I started doing psychotherapy was that there's there's basically two functional things that that I'm noticing here that I'm not really hearing other people talk about, and one of them is that everything is relationships, that that the relationships we have with all the different parts of ourselves, with spirit, with nature, with other people, and so on, if those go well, we go well, um, with our body, with our physical presence, and if they go badly, we go badly. Everything is relationships. Um, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, there's absolute truth, which is everything all at once right now, suchness, and everything else is relative truth, and relative truth is all relationships. And the second thing I noticed is that everything is happening all the time. Um, the, the fragmented psychotherapies of the 20th century pretended that we could just talk about behavior and not talk about spirituality or talk about cognition and not talk about emotion or talk about our history without talking about our traumas. Um, and I knew intuitively that that just wasn't right. All that stuff was happening all the time in consciousness and most of it in unconsciousness. That's what my book Shadow Light is about. And so how do you help people grow? How do you help people grow when most of their life they're run by powerful habits that are ingrained in their bodies and in their minds that send them up information that guides them? And, and our consciousness is this thin veneer on the top that, that can guide, powerfully guide, um, but it has to deal with these huge forces of unconscious learning and behavior and trauma and with our reactions to the world. Um, and that's what psychotherapy is about. And that's fascinated me my whole life. Um, I've probably done over 65,000 therapy sessions in my career, and I still, every week, uh, learn new things, um, find uh, new stories. Um, uh, it's, a, it's an exciting uh, time, uh, and it's nice to be 70 years old and excited. Yeah, you know, it's very apparent. You know, nobody would know you were 70 listening to your voice and feeling your energy and and I love that. I really do. And I have a lot of love and respect for your work and, and how you live and how much you share and just your capacity to really to take in pretty much every angle anyone can throw at you and, and have some way of relating to it. It's, it's very Aikido-like. Um, how would you define your spiritual philosophy if you, if you had to sort of uh, put that into a, an encapsulated form so that we could understand it? My, my belief and my experience is that um, uh, there, there is a field that has always existed and will always exist. And, and that when the egg and the sper- uh, and the, was fertilized by the f- sperm, there was a little electromagnetic field that came into existence, which is true when seeds are germinated and so on. Yes. And when that happens in people, 
there's some transmission from that general field into the particular, into us. Um, and then that self grows. Um, and it continues to grow. And then we're born. And we go through a series of differentiations. And and as we discover ourself, we discover we're a boy or a girl, we discover we have a theory of mind and so on. As we do that, there's a deep moral sense that every human has. Um, it's genetically driven. And I think what happens is at a very young age is that a wise self is developed. I, I think our, our brains are so sophisticated and our minds are so sophisticated energetically and biophysiologically that as we grow, always in relationship with other people, always in relationship with ourselves, always in relationship with spirit, that there's a wise self that's there. And we, we often, those of us that are parents, we've, we've seen that in our children. They'll look at us and they'll say something that has such deep wisdom that it blows our mind. And they don't know where it comes from. Um, and, but I think it comes from that field. But then on top of that, our personality develops. And our personality has our fixations. It has our joys, our sorrows, our attachments, all the drives. And we have all the drives that chimpanzees and rhesus monkeys have and slugs have and snails have. But we have to manage those. And that's a million processes that we have to learn how to manage. And as we learn how to do it, our personality gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And it blocks out our wise self to a certain extent. It blocks out our connection with spirit, that original origination point or soul or Atman. And until there's a point in our lives, developmentally it tends to happen in early adolescence between 9 and 12, when our brains go through a transformation where we can think relativistically, we become formal operational. And at that time, we can reflect on ourselves. And as we reflect on ourselves, we can choose to grow. We can choose to support our personal evolution. And if we do, if we're strong in that, in that instinct that we all have for self-transcendence, and that's a, that's a hardwired instinct. There's, there's a series of, of drives that human ha humans have, have that have been determined by personality theorists. One is reward dependence. One is dependence. One is cooperativeness. One is harm avoidance. Um, but one is self-transcendence. And people that are strong in self-transcendence become seekers. And then you want to grow and you want to self-transcend and you want to support your own evolution. As you do that, what we've discovered in Integral and in personality research is you start identifying with larger and larger and larger um, groups and um, beings in the world. You go from your family to your tribe, to your nation, to all people, to all life, to the universe. Um, if you engage in contemplative practices that strengthen your ability to do this, you begin to have moments where you go back to that original unity with everything. Only this time, you don't do it because you are unity um, and you have no separate self. This time you do it because through your separate self, you have embraced larger and larger and larger containers until finally you go, there is a larger container that is more me than my personality. And those are the moments that, that guide us. Um, and as we, uh, as we have more and more of those moments, more and more we feel like that's our real self. Um, my, my personal um, foundation meditation is one that's um, familiar to anybody who's studied Eastern, Western, South American traditions. It's a, it's a race, the Kundalini meditations, which Joe Dispenza does in his way. And, uh, you know, I, I started going up seven chakras, lighting, lighting the chakras up in, in 
a gross sense, in a in a subtle sense, in a in a emptiness sense, and in a non-dual sense. And over the years, there was all of a sudden there was an eighth chakra, <laughs> and uh, then yeah. and then and then I kept doing it, and then there was a ninth chakra, and in the ninth chakra there was a connection with. It felt like with a uh, a, a, a being that was connected to the universe in a way that was different from me. You know, I'm, the projected, the name that I gave it was Krishna. It just felt like a Krishna to me. Yeah. And so that, that, that sense of, there's that sense of Krishna-ness uh, is always there now. And, and, you know, he and I have conversations. Um, and right now he's in a way my bridge between this world and the other world. Um, and it takes me back to a quote that I read when I was 17 that blew my mind in a science fiction book called Dune, where the hero, a young man named Paul, who was 15 at the time, which was how old I was when I first read Dune, opens up a Bible and sees this passage. And the passage blows his mind. And it blew my mind. And the passage is, think you that a deaf person cannot hear. What deafness then might we not all possess? What senses do we lack that we cannot see and hear another world all around us? And I felt that. I thought there is another world, and, and I want that other world to be part of my life, an ordinary part of my life. And that was guided my spiritual path, and it is a part of my life now. It is it's part of the existence of the universe. And I think that in terms of my own personal spirituality, which is true for all of us, most of us these days have our own personal, you know, spiritual cosmos. That pretty much defines mine as, as much as I can say in a few minutes. Well, I love it. I think it's fantastic. It's in many ways uh, very in harmony with my own path and, uh, you know, different words, but comes to the same place. And I think it's a very integral path, and it really is a, an exemplification of your own teaching. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying my deep, meaningful conversation with integral psychologist and wise man Keith Witt. Keith and I both have a long history of helping people heal from mental-emotional wounds, and I can tell you for sure that one of the first steps to balancing emotions and the mind is consuming certified organic foods so that people have the nutrition they need to feed their brain and body optimally. If you'd like to add real certified organic nutrition to your diet that is easy to use, fast, and nutritious, there's no better place to start than with Organifi. Organifi offers a wide variety of excellent, good-tasting, easy-to-prepare superfoods, protein powders, and drinks that my family, friends, and clients love and use regularly. You can taste and feel the nutrition right away, and I know you're going to love Organifi's great products. Go to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and at checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20 to get your 20% discount on any of the products at Organifi. To get to know more about Drew Canoli, the founder of Organifi, listen to my podcast number 64 with Drew Canoli, UBU. I think you're really going to love this guy and find out why our values are so aligned. Enjoy Organifi. Listening to what you've just shared and having listened to a lot of audio and seen a lot of video and read two or three of your books now, um, it's it's fun for me because I can now hear something I haven't read, but that really resonates with what I perceived was the man I was reading, which is really cool. 
you know, I get that sense talking to you. Because you know, I checked out your book. Okay, now I'm talking to you. You know, we're having this conversation. I'm going, ah, I'm having that same sense. Another crazy man. Another crazy man who's dialed into the other world. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you talked about how everything was happening all the time in, in the beginning of our discussion here, uh, it reminded me of one of my favorite definitions of myth, which says, a myth is something that never happened, but is happening all the time. Yeah. And a myth is a story that tells itself. And so it's it's really interesting how, you know, I think we're going through a myth transition right now, and we're experiencing a counter myth of having to come to awareness of all the, you know, sort of blind spots that we have. And it's, as you know, leading to uh, quite a bit of turmoil. And what because I have you to talk to, there's something I, I wanted to ask you before we get into the other things that we were going to talk about, because I have a feeling you're going to have some wisdom to share. You know, I'll use Gebser's model because I think it's simpler. If you start from the bottom, you have the archaic level of consciousness, then you have the uh, magic, then you have the mythic, then you have the mental, and now the integral. And as Ken Wilber teaches, we transcend and include, at least that's what we really should be doing to stay healthy. But we have so many people that are really living in the mental plane today. They're very disconnected from the realities of the earth or what they're doing to the earth or the ramifications of everything from, you know, continuing to drill oil wells to fighting wars over things that are really not relevant con compared to the issues we have, spending trillions of dollars to defend lines on paper instead of paying attention to the fact that that money would be better used to rehabilitate the environment. People that are addicted to television that believe everything they read or everything they hear. And so the, the question really is, it, my observation is that when you look at the characteristics of the mental level of consciousness, be it Gebser's model or others, it seems that we have, through technology, been pushed up almost, drug up into the mental realm, but a lot of people have lost touch with the archaic and the importance of the earth and the importance of the magical connection to nature and importance and the importance of the real meaning and the power of myth. And so my question is, do you feel that we can in a pathological sense, be caught in a mental plane and there's ramifications of losing touch with the lower levels of consciousness that are ultimately essential for a well-rounded human being to, to really navigate life and not destroy themselves and the planet and each other. Well, I, I think exactly. That's, you know, in the, in the, in the, the worldviews that you just described, you know the archaic, just survival worldview, the magic worldview, which is which is um, typical of three and four year olds. The mythic worldview, which is typical of seven, eight, nine year olds. The rational worldview, more typical of teenagers. There's a pluralistic worldview of of egalitarianism, anti hierarchy, and then there's the integral worldview. Well, um, those first ones, until you get the integral. They tend to argue with each other, attack each other, and deny each other. Um, uh, we as human beings uh, suffer uh, with development. 
every time there's another level of development, there's new problems that can come up. And one of the problems is dissociation from our body, dissociation from nature, dissociation from spirituality. Um, and these are very difficult problems that people encounter, and they deal with them however they deal with them. They deal with them in all the pathologies that people have, um, and they deal with them by becoming seekers, or they deal with them by um, dedicating themselves to service. Um, and and as, as uh, people deal with these problems, um, because we're so powerful, humans are so powerful, um, they create cultural forms like institutions and corporations and, and nations and so on. And uh, in these collectives, there are uh, collective blind spots and there's collective pathologies that, um, that play themselves out. And we can see this all throughout human history, um, particularly the last 10,000 years of, uh, of agrarian history until we finally got to the Enlightenment about 300 years ago. And, and we're now in the Industrial Revolution, now the information. Um, now... As we see that, as, as humanity has gotten more powerful with, with new tools and, and new realizations and new information and more people and so on, it's created a lot more damage. And so this is the first of six great die-offs that have happened on this planet since life began. This is the first one that's caused by a, a, a factor that actually has consciousness, that actually has a moral core. You know, Humans have a moral core. Now, now that moral core is causing an awful lot of humans to go, it's not right to cause a great die-off. Um, it's not right to poison um, the biosphere. Um, it's not right to de develop more and more progressively dangerous ways to kill each other. And, and that has worked its way into the collective also. Um, things look really bad right now, and they are really bad right now. And there's less poverty now. There's less hunger proportionately um, in, terms of, uh, there's, in terms of the population. There's less war. There's more education. There's more equality of men and women. There's more democracy. Um, uh, the human race is up-leveling. It's evolving. Um, uh, violence is more forbidden, physical violence. We're seeing this now um, in the riots. Uh, yes. You know, I've I've been through a lot of these cycles. Uh, I, I remember I remember at Isla Vista back in the, you know 1970 whatever, um, being in riots. Okay, and you know there was an awful lot of horrible things that were happening: the police beating us up and shooting us and all this other stuff. Um, and you know people going out and burning down the Bank of America. There was Bank of America, the National Guardsmen coming in all these trucks. Well, the riots of these times are amazingly nonviolent um, compared to those. There has a lot more uh, consciousness these, in these um, dialogues about the real problems that are affecting particularly American culture. I mean, people aren't just talking about racism. They're talking about income inequality and poverty, which drive this stuff. They're talking about um, uh, medicine for profit, which is a catastrophe in this country. They're talking about incarceration for, for profit. They're talking about the, the, the war on drugs, whether it was by design or not, being uh, a form that was uh, um, uh, an that followed Jim Crow in um, keeping uh, black and brown and poor people down. People are talking about all these issues 
Um, they're dealing with the, the problems, those wicked problems that are multidimensional, that need multidimensional responses. Um, I, I was so touched in my heart that there were protests in, in England and, and France and um, Germany around George Floyd. I, you know, the, 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 boomer, the, the boomers were the first world-centric group. But, you know, uh, right now, the, the, um, the millennials, um, they're the first group in human history that identify more with their age group around the world than they do with their, nat- their nation. They're, they're truly a world-centric group, uh, statistically, in a way that hasn't happened before. So I'm encouraged by that, and I want to support that. I believe that the evolution of consciousness is what will guide humanity, not just through these crises, but to whatever the next evolutionary stages are um, for humanity in general and consciousness in particular. And so that's what I dedicate my life to on an individual basis with, with my clients, with the couples and individuals and families I work with, and with the work that I do, the teaching and with my writing and so on. Um, how do we each do that in ourselves? We support our own individual evolution and then support the, in the, the evolution of the people around us and then serve the highest good, supporting the evolution of consciousness on this planet. Um, yes. Challenge. It's beautiful. And, and two things came up for me while I was just listening to you there, which thank you very much. I really thought that was a great uh, explanation. Um, one of the challenges is I think people are confused about the difference between ethics and morals. And when we're looking at how much of the challenges in the world today are driven by large corporations, you know, when I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, I had to memorize about an almost 500-page book of who to kill, who not to kill, what to do if you take someone prisoner, what every enemy airplane and weapon and tank looked like. And we were drilled very heavily on it. But what what I'm pointing out is that is an ethics manual. And the definition I give is an ethic is a code of conduct and a moral is a code of conduct that is life affirmative. And I think a lot of what's happened is we've become so corporatized in this capitalist environment that we've really lost touch with the morality and science has lost touch with morality in many ways. And so we've got all this sort of ethnocentric behavior and you know, the, the fundamental religions are ethnocentric in, in their orientation. So you get all the competing of codes of conduct without awareness of the fact that even if uh, a black man was abused and treated unfairly and it looks racial and there's other such cases, if you then go out and burn everybody's houses and buildings down and, and destroy things, you're basically doing exactly to other people what you're fighting against. And I say, look, if you use the eye for an eye concept, you end up with two half blind people and neither is the wiser for it. There you go. (laughs) You know, and and it's go ahead. Well, first of all, I love it that you had a 500 page manual. It is one of the reasons that I'm so proud of the American military. Um, uh, the, the American military uh, had a wake-up call with Vietnam where it was probably the nadir of the American military. And now it's one of the more progressive institutions in terms of they understand that if we're going to empower people to do violence, the humans, violence is the worst addiction in humanity. 
you know, if once you start allowing yourself to objectify another person and do violence to them for your own gratification, that way lies madness and craziness. Um, yeah. And so um, the, the, the standards, you know, the moral standards that soldiers are held to are quite high. Now, you send anybody to war and it's going to fuck them up. 50% yeah. of the people that are deployed in theater, and that's not just people on the front lines. These are cooks mechanics and so on 50 percent of the people that are are deployed to combat when they come back they have psychological damage war is horrible for human beings um and part of that is uh the fact that human beings do not want to do violence to other human beings we're born with an instinct to share with other humans to be fair and to care for other people now until when you're talking about ethnocentric, like say fundamentalist, anything, nationalism, religion, that kind of stuff, what makes that dangerous is that there's a, a group of people that are humans, and then the people on the outside are objects. Yes. And we, and we can do violence to objects. Um, in a lot of tribal society, for instance, there's one word for human being, which is everybody that we have blood kinship with, and there's another world for, word for the other people. Not human being, okay? Um, and tribes are quite racist. Um, yes. So, so that objectification. Now, when you get with corporations, corporations will objectify people for profit. I mean, right now, um, the, the wealthiest people in this country basically own the Republican Party. Okay, so they, buy, they bought the Republican Party. Um, this is how I don't get furious Mitch McConnell. I see Mitch McConnell as a good employee of who, who hired him. He was hired by the rich people to take as much as they could from 95% of the populace and give as little as possible. And what that's done is created a brittle and fragile culture. And that brittleness and fragility is, uh, is revealed, as it often is in a culture, when there's a blow to it. So if there's a blow to a resilient culture, it, it absorbs it and comes back, like, for instance, German culture. If there's a blow to a fragile and brittle culture, it crumbles and there's major damage, which is what happened in, in American culture. And, and so the people at the top have gotten very, very good at telling big lies uh, to a lot of the populace. Um, they got really, really good at not letting government do anything and making government look bad and blaming Democrats so that Republicans got power. And then... Uh, they were able to stop anything from happening so that the people at the top could extract as much as they could and give as little as possible. Now, those of us that see that go, we don't want an extractive capitalism in our country. We want a generative capitalism in our country, like we had after the Second World War. Now, that was a racist society, but it was also a society that really wanted to empower people to go to school and make things happen and pay taxes. And so the middle class expanded and wealth expanded. And that's what needs to happen now. And more and more people are talking about that. Uh, Michael Moore, about five years ago in an interview, someone says, where are you going to get the money to help out all the poor people? He said, the money exists. It's in bank accounts in the Bahamas. We'll just, you know, yeah. <laughs> let's, pass, let's pass a law, take 10% from all the billionaires and 100 millionaires. They won't miss it. They're not going to have to sell one yacht. And they'll just get pissed off and scream and shout, and we'll take that 10% and we'll fix the roads and we'll, and we'll uh, raise wages, uh, maybe a, a guaranteed national income, who knows, and we'll help people join the middle class and create wealth. 
And, I, and when I heard it, I was fascinated by my reaction. At first, when I heard him say that, I was scandalized. I thought, God, Keith, you have been mind-controlled by American culture to think that it's immoral to take 10% of a billionaire's wealth to take care of everybody else. Wow. That actually, my urge, my instinctive human urge to share and care and be fair says, actually, that's exactly how it should be. And once we start stop objectifying everybody else, once I start relating to the kids in Somalia in the same way that I'm relating to the kids down my street, those solutions seem obvious. And so that's what we want to do. We want to help people recognize when they're objectifying other people and say, you know, you're not going to, you don't want to do that. Hi, everybody. You know, apple cider vinegar is like a panacea that's been shown through all sorts of research to help with just about anything. And I personally love this stuff. I found it very, very beneficial on many levels. And Paleo Valley's apple cider vinegar complex is absolutely awesome. And I've got Autumn Smith, their founder here right now to tell you why it will be a great addition to your life. Autumn, what is it about your cider vinegar complex that we should all know about. <laughs> well, I created the apple cider vinegar complex because I was on a mission to not only live as long as possible, but to feel amazing when I did that. And I learned about apple cider vinegar's incredible ability to help keep our blood sugar very nice and stable, which is one thing we know people who live long, healthy lives have. And then I added organic cinnamon and organic ginger and organic turmeric, all that have different benefits of their own from anti-inflammatory properties to brain benefits. And we put them all into capsules so that you could take it and then have your digestion feel better. You could have more energy. You could have you could avoid the ups and downs all day long because you have that nice, stable blood sugar. And of course, another interesting side is that apple cider vinegar may actually be able to help your body break down glyphosate. So there are so many different ways that you can use this product and reasons that you might. And the the reason it's so important to me is because I want food to be used as medicine. And so we can encourage our bodies to do all of these amazing things simply by the addition of the apple cider vinegar complex. Well, I also love that you have ginger in there because it's a very effective anti-parasitic. And today with the amount of processed food people are eating, uh, it's a really good idea to have some ginger in your diet. So I love this product myself. I use it every morning and uh, Autumn, where can people get it and what's their discount? You guys can all save up to 15% off with the checkout code CHECK. That's lowercase C-H-E-K 15. And I just wanted to mention too, the number one thing I hear from people is that this complex helps them reduce cravings. So I hope you That's, all love it. Yes. Yeah, so go to paleovalley, P-A-L-E-O valley.com and get your 15% discount. And I hope you love it as much as I do. No, most of the Trump supporters are good people. You know, you you have a flat tire outside one of their houses. They're not going to shoot you. They're going to, you know, fix your tire and probably offer you dinner. But when they get together and they objectify other groups like immigrants or whatever, now they're objects. They're not people anymore. And then they can, they can justify doing great violence to them. Um, and they don't realize it. And so my job is to help them realize it. How to do that? Well, there's a lot of ways. Working against poverty and, and for people in the middle class, that helps. Psychotherapy, you do it one person at a time. My particular favorite is I have two big favorites. One, let's make child abuse and child neglect be our number one problem. 
that causes more death, expense, mental illness, and suicide than all the other problems put together, certainly more than COVID. And yet people don't say if we could eliminate child abuse and child neglect in this generation, then the next generation will have half as much incarceration and half as much mental illness and half as much physical illness. So I'd like, let's make that a national priority. Um, And there's lots of ways that have been proven that help that. And the other one is, let's get everybody together and and find the the superior education models in the world. I'm talking to you, Finland, and let's model ourselves after them. Finland pays their teachers a lot of money. They all have a coach that watches them teach. The kids aren't tested with standardized tests. They're in small classes where they explore and learn. And Finland has the best scores in the world every year. Those models work. We could use those models. But you know, in Washington, D.C., the school superintendent said to the teachers union, now that's, that's a progressive play, union, you think. They said, look, I want to double, t- I want to I pass a law that doubles teachers' salaries, but you don't have tenure anymore, so we can fire the bad teachers. And the teachers union said, no, we don't want, we don't want to sacrifice you not being able to fire bad teachers for twice as much money. And I went, okay, that's a systemic problem. Um, yep. And and if we could change education to be more like the the Finns and if we could we can prevent child abuse and neglect which you know means we have to address poverty and we have to address medicine for profit and we have to address some other things. Yeah, like religion. Well, you know religion Ken wrote a book Ken Wilber wrote a book called The Future of Religion and he made I got a, it. Yeah, well there you go. So he made a great point. He said, we, we don't want to get rid of religion. What we want to do with religion is we want religion to be a conveyor belt. When people are at a fundamentalist stage, let them be fundamentalist Christians or Muslims or so on, and let's have healthy fundamentalism. Healthy fundamentalism are like the Amish. Yeah, okay, we don't think, we think you guys are full of it, and we're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to hell. I, I don't know if they have heaven or hell. I suspect they do. But we're not going to do any violence to you guys. You know, you still have rights as human beings. That's healthy fundamentalism. Let's have healthy rationalism. Yes, we can be capitalists and make a profit. But, you know, there are, there are, there's a friend of mine in, in um, Brazil, Marcelo Cardoso, who wrote a paper called Meta uh, Management. And in that, he said what progressive companies do is they say there's three outcomes that we want to look at. We want to look at making money, but we also want to look at social outcomes. How does our company help the people in it and the people around it, the the stakeholders? And environmental outcomes. How does this help the environment? And so if capitalism is constrained, they have to look at those other outcomes, the environment and the social outcomes, as well as profit. Then that turns into generative capitalism. Generative capitalism is great. I would uh, generative, generative capitalism in the corporations that are constrained to have to do generative capitalism and they need external constraint because unlike Mitch Romney is saying, no, and the Supreme Court, corporations are not people. Corporations will become as corrupt as we allow them to become. We constrain them so that they can't be corrupt. They won't be corrupt. If we constrain the drug companies so that they have to give us drugs at a reasonable price, they'll do it. And five years from now, they'll be self, uh, they'll be really proud of themselves for how well they're doing it. If we can do that, we create generative capitalism. They, and that's social democracy. Um, and social democracy is a superior form of government and just a superior form of, of economic 
um, approach to the world. Uh, and, and so and on a local level, understanding that and coming from that place, which is a place of radical inclusion and, and using your own inner wisdom, that guides me in my psychotherapy. And I think it guides all good psychotherapists. Uh, again, the 21st century is about integrative systems. So, you know, back in 1980, if I said that stuff, they go, well, you're a feminist therapist. Go, no, yeah, yeah. Or a hippie. Or I'm a hippie therapist. No, I, I guess I got feminism in there and I got hippiness in there. But, you know, what I am is a therapist. And a therapist is dealing with the whole person. And the whole person is a whole bunch of processes. And I have to have some intuitive understanding and some actual understanding of what's, what's healthy and unhealthy on, on most levels to be a guide to other human beings and their development. And if everything is relationships and everything's happening all the time and we exist in multiple contexts, I have to take all that into account with every single thing that I do with my clients and with myself. And when you do that, your clients start doing it. And as they start doing it, they take their body into account and their supplements and the environment. They start looking at data more critically. Um, in this age of so much data, the amount of knowledge in the world doubled between 2011 and 2014. Now what we have to teach people is how to discern good data from bad data. Um, um, I'm very suspicious of myself making an instantaneous judgment from any one data set. I want to look at the other side and, and, and maybe another side um, and have a more nuanced understanding um, of almost everything. I've discovered that a compassionate understanding and nuanced understanding seems to guide me better um, than more black and white understanding. And, and also, most people are trying to do right. But if you have somebody in a corrupt institution trying to do right, what they end up doing is, is dissociating from and normalizing the corruption of their institution. Just like many of us, all of us in America have normalized to some extent racism. You know, you, all of us to some extent are codependent with these pathological corrupt forces in the culture because we have to be. Otherwise, I couldn't live in a house and do a job and pay my taxes and uh, relate to everybody else. Um, uh, I would be frozen uh, in my protest around the corruption in the major institutions. I work against that corruption, but also I'm part of this, this culture. I'm part of this economy. I have to operate within the constraints of it. And I try to find where I've dissociated and wake myself up, and I try to help other people wake up. And helping people wake up, I think, is the answer. Yes, indeed. I, I totally agree. And a couple of things that have come up for me is is one, as as you were just describing the the, the coping um, and how we have to get along. As you were talking about the racism or the person and the company, it, it, it there's so much of this going on on so many levels. I think as a shadow master, you'd probably agree that we're ultimately uh, as we're adapting to and surviving in an environment where there's still racism or destruction of the earth or unnecessary use of military power, uh, destruction of nature through chemicals, whatever it might be. There's, there seems to me that we're, we're actually, because we have so many things going on at such a fast pace, it seems for people that aren't doing any shadow work that we're actually repressing a lot of the pain and a lot of the material and a lot of the judgments that uh, if we were moving a little slower, we might be able to engage with more consciousness. I'm curious uh, how you feel about that concept. 
I think you're 100% right um, about moving slower. You know, people, domestic violence has gone up during the COVID lockdown. Um, And probably child abuse has gone up too. There are less reports of child abuse, which is not a good sign because the mandated reporters aren't seeing children, um, teachers, therapists, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, But not in my practice. In my practice, the couples that I work with are doing better. They're sweeter with each other. They're not going to the mandatory social events, to the gala and the fundraising or, or whatever. Even the, you know, the bar mitzvah or the wedding, they're hanging out with each other. They're, they're playing Scrabble and watching TV. And, and they're discovering why they married each other in the first place. And a lot of them are getting sweeter. They're slowing down. Um, and they're beginning to get a little bit more human with each other. I think on a larger cultural level, you're right. Things go are going so fast, and there's so much stress um, that people are just managing day to day. And and when you're just managing day to day, there's not a lot of room to deal with the, the the unconscious or shadow material that is driving all of us all the time. Basically, we're driven by our unconscious. By I, in my book Shadow Light, I see the whole entire unconscious as everything that we're not consciously aware of is shadow. And there's and all the time it's in reaction to our own inner cues and our and our connections with other people is giving us it's giving us information and impulses and stories. There's constructive ones, like the ones you and I have talking. You and I mm-hmm. have impulses to share what we believe is most exciting and true with each other and and a, and a sense of social engagement and trust and care with each other that's constructive shadow that we're allowing to guide us in our conversation it comes from the right hemisphere mostly um, where morality and self-reflection are tend to be based in the human brain and it's where you and I are relating a lot right hemisphere to right hemisphere but when, but when a, a person feels threatened, when their, their nervous system has a neuroception of threat, it, it goes into defensive states. Defensive states um, separate us from other people and create destructive impulses and, and distorted stories. And um, long ago, um, people that want to have power over other people have discovered that if they can create a narrative that feeds a distorted story that's a common archetypal distorted story, other people will join together and then in a group can create a field of violence. And that can violence can objectify and hurt other people or nature. Um, corporations have done this. Um, nations have done this. Um, we can see it throughout human history. And, yeah. and so what shadow, shadow work is, is, is learning how to pay attention to that, that material that's always coming up. And discerning the constructive stuff and saying yes to it and discerning the destructive stuff and dialysizing it, purifying it into constructive. Now, as we do that, we all develop our own moral imperative. Um, One of the main reasons that I protested the war and wouldn't go into the army or whatever they were going to put me in in 1968 was that it was immoral to me to have somebody else tell me who to shoot. Yeah, I, I I have no problem shooting somebody if I have to, okay. But I have to have a personal moral imperative to do that. You know, if, if guys break it into my house and I kill him, I don't really feel bad about that, okay. But if it's just somebody says, "Look, you you have to go down the road, and knock on a door, and shoot somebody," sorry, I'm not going to do that. Um, 
Well, a lot of us now, as we continue to grow, have our own moral sense that that basically trumps. I hate I hate that word has been ruined by by Trump. That basically is our 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 forward edge morality, and it's an integral morality. It's a relativistic morality where we're looking for what serves the highest good. What serves the highest good? And if I determine what serves the highest good, um, uh, um, then that needs that to me. That's a higher moral standard, and that's that's how we grow. We grow from conformist moral standards to somewhat self-interested, competitive moral standards to unrealistic, everybody be treated the same moral standards to integral relativistic moral standards where everyone needs respect and care and rights and every situation is slightly different. It's a relativistic situation. Let's bring our, our moral standard of what serves the highest good to this particular moment. And that's how people grow morally. Um, and you see this in le- certain leaders. You see it in Obama. Obama always had this. Um, and, you know, he made a lot of mistakes. Um, and some of the things he did that I disagreed with. But I knew that he was coming from his own um, sense of what was moral. I know. And, the, and the, the fact that he was referencing that to me, even when I disagreed with him, was comforting. Um, Donald Trump has a very egocentric morality. Um, um, Egocentric morality, power of God morality, is something's right if I if I say it is, and it's moral if I can do it. Okay, yeah. and and so he actually gets confused when someone says, "Well, you can't do that. That's not right." And he goes, "Yes, I can. I have the power to do it, and therefore it's moral." Um, that's how he's always been, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's 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 not that, it, that there's no morality there. It's just a super primitive morality that essentially objectifies everybody. That's what I was going to say. It's really more the mentality of an ancient emperor or king from the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that that differentiates him from, say, Genghis Khan is is that Genghis Khan was way more intelligent, had way more ambition. I, well, I hope Donald Trump gets to hear this podcast <laughs> to, <laughs> to get his his analysis from Keith Witt for free. <laughs> way more intelligent, way more ambitious. The, the thing that reassures me most about Trump is his lack of, of ambition. He just wants to be the most important person in the world. He doesn't want yeah. to, he doesn't want to count, conquer Canada. He doesn't really want anything other than to be the most important person in the world. And so I think that that has been his one saving grace. He doesn't want to go start a war. That's just too much trouble. Um, and, and uh, okay, you know, and I'll, I'll take my blessings where I can find them these days. And that particular one is a blessing, his lack of ambition. He, he wants to get reelected. That's all he wants. He doesn't want to get reelected to do anything. He just wants to get reelected so he can keep being the most important person in the world. Okay. Yeah. Pretty, pretty interesting. You know, Trump reminds me of a your little boy. You know, I've got a four-year-old boy, and uh, uh, he's he's uh, he's a lovely little guy. But I'll tell you, when when if he wants your attention and he can't get it, he'll do about anything to get it. <laughs> a, he'll pick up a truck and throw it across the room through a window. And then he's got your attention. And I, I kind of, I see Donald Trump like that. Bullseye. 
Brain fog and poor cognitive performance as well as emotional instability are all common challenges that come with poor digestion. My clients, family, and I love to use Bioptimizer's excellent digestive enzymes, probiotics, and other great products regularly. Bioptimizer's products are at the cutting edge of health science and ideal for supporting your digestion, metabolism, assimilation, and elimination. That means you get more from your food, supplements, heal faster, and perform better. Bioptimizer's enzymes also aid recovery from training, and their Capex enzymes also help stimulate your metabolism naturally. Living 4D listeners save 10% on any order by using the code PAUL10, that's capital P-A-U-L-10, just like you'd write a name, PAUL10, on checkout. Go to Bioptimizer's, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com and check out their amazing product line. If you listen to my podcast number 55, you can meet Wade Lightheart, co-founder of Bioptimizers, and you'll find he's an amazing wise man. I think you're going to really love what you learn, and you're going to see why, again, my values are so aligned with Wade and all my sponsors, because they are really, truly loving people and care about you and their products. Show it. Enjoy Bioptimizers. You know, I have a I have a web series uh, called Therapist in the Wild, and you know, for a long time, uh, when my son was home, uh, he uh, he and I did this web series where I, I wanted to I wanted to teach, but I wanted to have fun, so I just would just do a rant about something that I thought was a great thing, and I would I would I would want to make it funny but relevant, and so I have about forty of those posted, and one of them is how to parent a four year old. And the bottom mm-hmm. line is when a four-year-old is doing that, when he's throwing his trucks around, he needs external constraint. And if we don't provide the external constraint that he needs, which is caring and respectful but constraining, then he's reinforced in raising his emotional level and striking out sadistically um, to get what he wants. Because yep. there's a real gratification in striking out when you're angry. And like I said, violence is the worst addiction. And it's our job to teach our kids to not do that, teach our kids to regulate their anger into assertive action and to recognize that there's gratification in hurting another person, but also you hurt yourself spiritually and you need to feel that pain of hurting another person and recognize that's why we don't hurt other people unnecessarily. He never learned that. And as a result, he's had this miserable life. And, you know, I wouldn't trade, you know, I don't care how much money the guy has. I wouldn't trade... um, my life for any aspect of his life. You know, he's lived a miserable life and he'll continue to. And I'm I'm sorry he has to, but there it is. And I'm really sorry that he is the most powerful person in the world doing that. <laughs> well, that, that's, see, there, you see, one of the things I think that Trump really does for us, and I know you've had conversations like this because I've heard them, but I really think Trump's gift to us is he is the physical embodiment of the shadow of our nation projective identification you know it, one of the most difficult uh, uh problems that humans can have a person can have is a personality disorder and one personality disorder that's particularly a problem is borderline personality disorder if, if somebody's super sensitive and they they're in an environment where there's abuse and neglect um they'll tend to get arrested developmentally in a place where when they're distressed they will go into a rage place. They'll objectify another human being and they'll just have these overwhelming desires to, to, to attack that person and keep attacking. 
and they they have this sense if I can keep attacking this person um, because and what they'll do is they'll take their own destructive side you know their own sadism or their own selfishness or their own um, neglect of self or others and they'll project it onto the other person and then they'll attack it and attack it and attack it it's called projective identification mm-hmm. um, and so you you see that on a on a cultural level with the Republican Party, um, the, particularly the right the, the right hand, the extreme, and you see you see it to a lesser extent, but somewhat to the extreme progressives, where they take their own violence. They say these other person people are evil. We need to dominate them. We need to attack them. We need to control them. We need to do that because they are selfish. Because they want to control everybody, and because um, they want to exploit us, and because um, they want to take away our rights. When actually, these are all aspects of themselves that they're doing as they speak, and they're unconscious of. They're dissociated from. It's destructive shadow, and they don't want to face their own destructive shadow, so they project it onto another group. And then, as long as we're attacking that other group, somehow we feel like we're being virtuous. Okay. Projective identification, and we. Yes. And we see that happening all over the place. Um, and that's why nonviolent change is slow and frustrating, but, but ultimately the best. And by violent change is very attractive. Um, quick violent change is attractive and ultimately is a disaster. Um, yeah, I, th- I think what happens is people, and I've discussed this, you know, I also have a long background in martial arts and boxing and kickboxing and Oh boy, uh, we would have had yeah. a lot of fun sparring back in the day. You, I bet yeah. you would have been a great opponent. Uh, I've uh, certainly done my share of damage to opponents, and 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 I've had I've got plenty of wounds to to uh, talk about my path in the twenty uh, foot square for sure. Yeah, me too. But, but uh, you know, I just uh, I was leading to the fact that you know it, you can get really. Um, you can get comfortable with inflicting damage and you can get comfortable, you know, being a, being a a soldier and a a paratrooper and being around a lot of elite soldiers and the intensity of the training and, and seeing how it's very hard to come home from being verbally, emotionally, and physically abused and come home to your family and not outgas that. And yeah. there's a lot of violence in military families and I've watched it and been part of it. And I had to really, really be careful with my own emotion and my own pain and my own frustration so that I wasn't too destructive in my own family. But I remember very distinctly three years after I got out of the 82nd airborne division, when I left the military, one day my wife looked at me and she said, you're finally normal. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? Aww. She goes, she said, now it's taken three years for the man that I married to return because you changed when you became a soldier and you were a really hard person for us to be with. And I, it hit me like a, you know, like an arrow between the eyes. I'm like, wow, you, you mean I was really that much different? She said, you were so intense. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And what, you know, I was in the 82nd Combat Aviation Battalion, and my job was to repair weapon systems on Cobra helicopters, and the training is very intense. And it's a, I did a year in electronic school. I had to go to math school for two months to get my math skills up high enough, because in training, you have to do all the assessment of circuits and systems by hand on a piece of paper, no calculators, because if you lose your 
calculator in a battlefield, you still have to figure out how to fix stuff. So right. uh, it was racking the hell out of my brain. And then there's a lot of, you know, uh, verbal abuse, you know, how the whole thing goes. And, and I didn't realize I was carrying all that stuff home. I mean, I did realize it to some degree, but compared to what I saw around me, I thought I was a bit of an angel. But my point in, in saying all this is that you actually can get to the point where you're comfortable hurting people and you're comfortable with violence. And you can get to the point where you think that is how you control things and that's how you make shit happen quickly. And it can lead you into a view of the world that is very, very pathological and you don't know it, but the people around you know it. Well, that's hyper-masculine culture. Yes, Hi -hyper it very much. You know, hyper-masculine cultures do that. Now, the, the advantage of that is that you can discover your warrior self. You can embody your warrior self. And to a certain extent, you need to discover and embody the warrior to move forward into man of wisdom. Um, so I got to say, I really admire your wife. <laughs> you know, good for her. <laughs> yeah. Putting up with you being a, you being so intense for three years, and then and then having the insight to tell you that you're back. I mean, that's that's a pretty beautiful. When I'm working with a couple, and and a wife is capable of of saying that, and a husband is capable of hearing it and understanding it, I go, oh boy, you know, I can really help this couple go to the next level. So congratulations to her. You know, tell her that I'm very impressed with her for being able to do that and for you to be able to receive that. Well, she listens to my podcast now and then. That was my first wife. We were married for 17 years, and my son, Paul Jr., is 40 now. But wow. uh, I'm, sure she, I'm sure she'd be happy to hear your comments, especially coming from you. So I'll make sure to tell her there's a surprise in this podcast for her. One yeah, of the things that came up yeah, one of the things that came up with me uh, as we were talking is uh, I've studied a lot of Irvin Laszlo's work and I interviewed him recently and he brought up an important point that I, I'd like to share with you because I want to hear your response to it. When you think about what's going on right now and how many of our systems are breaking down, he, he, Irvin Laszlo said, you got to realize when a system is unstable, that's when it's most open to change. And he said, as scary as things might be right now, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, now is a great opportunity for us to really get together collectively and make the changes we need to make because the planet can't take too much more of this instability before something's just got to completely give. Yeah. Uh, I, first of all, I completely agree with that. And, and second of all, um, in, in spite of myself, I'm going, the person who is the, the most prescient, about what was going to be happening these last three years, in retrospect, was Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon um, thought that that the, there was a major deconstruction of culture that was in, that was happening, and he wanted to, to hurry it along. And what he told the Trump people is, he said, "Our opponents aren't the Democrats." Our opponents are the news media. And what we need to do is pump so much shit into the news media that people can't tell the difference between real stuff and not real stuff. <laughs> That's Well, they've been good at it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I go, well, Steve Bannon, you know, mission accomplished. Uh, you certainly were able to do that. Now, that being said, we are, we are a brittle, fragile culture that's de deconstructing before our eyes. And I do think, I do think this is a moment and I've seen other moments like this before, Paul. You know, I saw in the 60s, you know, we got the Civil Rights uh, Act 
passed and, and Social Security passed. Um, you know, there were reforms in the 90s uh, in terms of government oversight of, of local police um, departments. Um, there's a lot of – we're decriminalizing marijuana and, and other drugs. This is the war on drugs is, has basically just – just furthered along, um, you know, the incarceration for, for profit and the essentially the war on on minorities and on poor people. I think I think we're at a point where where there's a lot of room for for changes in those areas, and I'm I'm optimistic about it in America. I really am. I um, I it might take a long long time. Um, you know, Hillary, Hillary, to her credit, and Bill, they, they tried to, to put a crack into the medicine-for-profit model of the United States in the 90s, and they were crushed by the pharmaceutical company and, and, and by the AMA and stuff. But, there's be, but Obama put a crack in that edifice, and I think the, there's going to be more cracks as, as we keep on seeing the discrepancies between our systems and other systems. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, Jeff Salzman and I, we do the, you, you've listened to our Shrink and Pundit sure, uh, yeah, yeah. podcast. Well, lots of times, yeah, I enjoy it. Well, both of us are very optimistic. Uh, that being said, it's a dangerous time. Yes. It's just dangerous now. It's dangerous economically. It's dangerous physically. Um, uh, the, 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 there's, there's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. They're going to die on account of our government's um, a poor response to not just the COVID crisis, but to the general health of, of, of the population. Um, social isolation is causing um, uh, the suicide and drug e- epidemics, as well as um, the amount of uh, child abuse and neglect that, that happened in this country. Um, 28% of women and 16% of, of, of men were sexually abused. You know, one eighth of American kids saw their mother being beat up by somebody. Okay, these these have effects developmentally on children. It makes it hard for them to learn. It makes it hard for them to self-regulate their emotions. It makes yep. it easier for them to engage in these behaviors. It makes them feel bad inside because children tend to take things on themselves. And then when they feel bad, it makes them more interested in things that will help them feel better temporarily, like drugs and alcohol. And those drugs or alcohol help a little bit. And one definition of addiction is it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. <laughs> That's a good one. My definition of an addiction is any repeated behavior that does not produce the results you want. Yeah, but it almost works. And so yeah. hard to get enough of that. And so yeah. that social isolation is driven by the fact that everybody is kept really close to the edge of this country of just barely making it just enough so that the people at the top can extract as much as they can out. But everybody doesn't have, people don't have as much time to live their life, take care of themselves, take care of their kids. Americans work more hours than anybody on earth, except sometimes Japan. Okay. Well, I don't think that's a good statistic. And, and And one thing, I think it was Google or Facebook. I can't remember which one. I think it was Google. In Japan, what they did to their people is they put them on a 32-hour work week. They said you can only have half-hour meetings, a maximum of five people. Just get your work done, okay? They did that with everybody. Everybody gets paid the same, but it's 32 hours. Go home and have a good time. Have a meeting for a half-hour, maximum of five people. Do your job, and let's see what happens. 
their their productivity in Japan went up 41% doing that. They worked eight hours less, produced 41% more. Okay. That's uh that's really not only is it a wise move, but it shows you that the ratio of rest relative to productivity is uh, such that it doesn't take that much more rest to really enhance productivity. And I think we are so underrested and we've got such a disease with chasing outcomes. Our culture has completely lost touch with unbound play, doing things for no outcome. And our whole education system is always about the grade you're going to get. And people are constantly evaluating each other and pushing each other. In fact, the highest rates of teenage suicide uh, a few years back when I looked were in um, Japan due to scholastic standards. And the country that was number two was New Zealand, who had the second highest scholastic standards in high school in the world. And so when you look at the fact that we're constantly being programmed through our education systems from children all the way up, that we've got to get an outcome which is very left brain oriented, very kind of masculine. The arrow has to hit the target. We lost touch with the beauty of singing and dancing and enjoying stories and just having time to be with each other. And, you know, what I call unbound play, play without any outcome, which is why I stack rocks. I make these great big, huge rock sculptures that gives me one hell of a workout. But if the fucking thing falls over, who gives a shit? It's a pile of rocks. I, I saw those. I love those rock sculptures. I, I, I saw that video of you doing them. Those are great, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> those they're are beautiful. It's hard work. It's yes, a great hard work. Workout. But yeah. you know what? It's like it's it teaches you a lot. When I started doing that and I teach classes on it, you should see how pissed off people will get when their rock stack falls over. You it's like <laughs> it's like a four-year-old throwing a tantrum. And I tell them, okay, the stone Buddhas have come to teach you. I say, remember, this is just rock. Just right. And in fact, Steiner says, I tell him, you, you might want to take a note out of Steiner's playbook. Steiner says rocks are unconscious until you break them. So you're <laughs> actually waking them up to the joy they're having when they fall down. So don't feel bad about it. But we've got a culture that has a really hard time having time to just not have to do anything. And if they just took more time to just be and enjoy each other and enjoy reading something they enjoy they wouldn't have to medicate themselves so much and they would actually go back to work capable of focusing on the outcome instead of surviving the need to produce one. You're you're intuitively resonating with a lot of the research that we've done on early development, um, education, and on trauma. Um, First of all, for instance... Kids, what do kids learn? What, what helps kids learn? Well, rough and tumble play with a, a, a authoritative parent or with other kids where it's controlled. The people don't get hurt, but they get to do rough and tumble play like wrestling or bouncing around stuff. That's associated with, with concentration, um, attention, um, and affect regulation later on in childhood. Um, dance, movement, um, uh, art is associated with uh, uh, neurogenesis and cognitive development. Um, and also, if you ask people what were the most uh, impactful experiences 
of their middle school, for instance, and high school, they'll tell you a lot more about their social events or about the play that they are in or about the instrument they learned than they're going to talk about whether they learned algebra or not. Um, right. Um, and then th- most of us are traumatized growing up. I mean, the average amount of traumas that a normal person had by 35 in Australia in one study was four. Okay. So it's normal. 66% of them had had that. Most of us are traumatized as we grow up. What do we, what do you do for trauma? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Um, contact, healthy contact with other people, healthy expression of what's going on inside, singing, dancing, martial arts, rhythmic activity. When, when, when they did the truth and reconciliation um, groups in, 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 in South Africa, and they did that to, pre- to prevent a white genocide when 27 million blacks um, now could vote and there were like 4 million whites. They, um, Desmond Tutu would go into a, a big hall and everybody would pray and then they'd sing and then they'd dance and somebody would tell their abuse story and people would start getting jacked up and freaked out and he'd stop and he'd pray and he'd sing and he'd dance some more and then they'd tell the story again. Basically, he was pendulating back and forth the way that Peter Levine pendulates when he does his trauma, his somatic um, trauma treatment. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, human beings crave that kind of connection with each other, and we always have. Um, there's not enough of it in, in American culture. I think a lot of kids now are suffering from not being able to go to rock concerts. Rock concerts is where people, uh, kids have gone and, and, and older people have gone to sing and dance and be around a lot of people where you feel like you're sharing a moral core. Um, yeah. You know, like a Bruce Springsteen concert is basically a revival meeting. Um, yeah, and there's a yeah, moral need, core to it. Yeah, we need some wild freedom. Yeah, yeah, and you know, some of us just do that. Okay, that's but you know, we do that because we've taught ourselves how to do it. It's interesting to me how so many people I work with will do something like that. They go, God, I'm weird, Keith, and I go, No, you're not weird. You're that's healthy. not what I call. Weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly. I don't call that weird. I call that healthy. Okay. Yeah. Not only do I call that healthy, but you, you, you are in line with all the other healthy people that I know that have their own version of whatever you're talking about. Um, and I encourage people who don't do that to learn how to do it. Um, and it's important. Uh, and this is, again, the 21st century. Psychotherapy is, is less about psychopathology and more about development and health and learning how to be a joyful person, learning how to have loving relationships, learning how to integrate your shadow self so you have a coherent self that can manage who you are and who you've been and where you're going. Um, and you're right. Yeah. We, need more, we need time for that. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that the culture will create that. Um, I have hopes about that. Um, and I think, it, I think it's going in that direction, but it's a difficult time. Um, yeah, it <laughs> you know, is. People would kid me about being a, th- a therapist, you know, back in when I, I've, I've been a therapist forever. I started my first session when I was 23. And I'd always tell them, yeah, well, in this country, neurosis is a growth industry. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. It's growing, too. <laughs> yeah. Hi, everybody. You know, one of my favorite products from Symbiotica is a product called Heal All. And I was very fortunate to be one of the people that it was given to to test it when it was in production. And it's an amazing product. It is excellent for 
uh, if you have a, an injury, and it just so happened that I had actually hurt my neck lifting heavy stones and kind of tweaked my lower cervical spine where I have my old injury and was in a lot of pain from, uh, you know, the, the sort of the strain that I'd put through there. And I immediately put the heel all on it and it did far better than any of the other products that I was trying at the time. And heel all is not only good for musculoskeletal injuries like training injuries or work injuries, but it's good for supporting you with body pains in general, burns, insect bites, sunburn, or pretty much anything where you need more healing power. And I asked Sherveen if you would come share some of the specifics about heal all so you can understand even better. You know, I wanted to make something that actually worked. What a concept. <laughs> can, can, you, can you actually believe that? Yeah. Not a cream, not a lotion, something that penetrates the transdermal skin and gets into the bloodstream and actually provides growth factors and information and coding so the problem can be fixed. And that's why it's called Heal All. This, this design right here, it penetrates deep into problem areas. So if you're sore, got a sore shoulder, yes. or you burn something on your foot or whatever it is. I can literally feel it going in. You know why you can feel it? Because of the DMSO. Because there's dimethyl, dimethyl sulfoxide in there, yes. which pushes everything in there. We have 500 milligrams of CBD in here. We have tetrahydrocurcumin, so the highest bioavailable form of curcumin. We have arnica. We have um, ginger. We have zextine, magnesium. We have all kinds of powerful medicinals in here. I can't even tell you the whole list. Someone's got to go and look for themselves. That's how powerful this is. Nothing like this has ever been done before. And it's in a glass Myron bottle with a glass ball. So it's a roller. There's no waste. Nothing's getting deteriorated. This is the top shelf, highest quality ever. Yes. I love the product. I just hope I don't ever have to use it. But when I do, at least I know I have a real powerful tool in my medicine chest. So get on over to Symbiotica, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And to get your 15% discount on checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15. And as always, let me know what you think. I love these products or I wouldn't share them with you. And I'm quite positive you're going to have the same kind of experience that I've had, which is enough to get me excited about sharing them with you. Enjoy. Well, Keith, it's, it's uh, absolutely just been lovely to talk to you. I love talking to somebody with the life experience you have, the versatility of, and depth and breadth of knowledge. It's, it's uh, you know, I think... Before I get us into the, the topic, one of the key topics that we were going to talk about, which is your book and your uh, program, Loving Yourself Completely, I wanted to, to just say that one of the things that I think is part of our big problem is we've lost the uh, tribal systems. The elders were the primary educators, and they had a very stabilizing effect. And in our culture, we sort of shelved elderly people and... Unfortunately, a lot of them in this sort of attitude of trying to stay young and using plastic surgery and making more money. So it's almost like we've got a culture of elderly people that go into sort of a pathological uh, attempt at youth again. And uh, we don't have the wisdom of the elders. And, and I think I'm just curious, how do you feel that the that the our culture would be if we had more people with the wisdom of older people and life experience that could connect more with younger people and even people in their thirties and forties and fifties. I mean, you're 70 
and you're still vital, you're still highly intelligent and very active in the world. I mean, if I was 35 and I came and sat next to a campfire and you were the chief or the storyteller, I would not want to fucking let go of you. I would hook a goddamn bungee cord to you and follow you around and call you grandpa. Uh, Where, where do you think, how much of an impact do you think um, losing our sort of our natural connection to the elders and the wise people of what would have been a tribe, but now would be society is impacting us. Well, it's interesting. Um, For four or five years, we homeschooled our kids and, uh, uh, my my children are my kids are thirty one and thirty five now, um, but while we were homeschooling kids, there was a bunch of families, and we would camp a lot. And I was the storyteller. Um, the reason that I was the storyteller is because there was a certain level of of instruction in the world, particularly moral instruction, that it, um, it was my responsibility to provide. And kids learn through stories. Um, and, you know, after dinner, all the kids and I would go around a fire and I would tell them a story and the grownups would go and hang out and do that kind of stuff. Um, and what you're describing actually is happening to a certain extent these days. Uh, not, not everybody that's, that's growing older is, is obsessed with, I don't know, Botox and whatever. I'm not, not that I'm against cosmetic surgery. The only, the only the only people I've ever worked with that have actually hated cosmetic surgery are, are women that have done breast uh, enhancements and then they've had problems with the prosthesis. Um, but I think for, from, a, from a developmental standpoint, the concept of lifelong development is a new concept. Um, uh, it, the last 40, 40 or 50 years, probably starting in the 70s or 80s, we began to realize and we began to have the neuroscience to support it, we can keep on developing in every line pretty much for the rest of our lives. Now, as we do that, and also we're beginning to to understand what superior parenting was and what bad parenting was. So there's an awful lot of people that took that to heart. Um, And they've continued to want to grow and they've tried to become better parents. And a superior parent does their best to cherish and and, uh, take care of and protect and support the development of their kid, and they're and they're they're always interested in becoming a better parent. Um, and I hopefully I'll I'll continue to grow as a parent for the rest of my life. So what's happening around that is there's an awful lot of young people that spend a lot of time talking to their mom and their dad, who is a seeker. Um, my kids call us and talk to us all the time. My daughter probably talks to my wife every day, and my wife's a seeker. She has an enormous amount of wisdom. Um, and so I'm seeing that happening like that in, a, in an awful lot of environments. Now, that being said, um, uh, the appreciation of more advanced levels of consciousness kind of requires more advanced levels of consciousness. Um, the culture has, a, has an understanding that depth is a good thing, that unity is a good thing, but, the, but a lot of people don't realize where they got that understanding and they don't realize that there's certain people that are more dialed into that, um, are so dialed into that, that they can guide them. Um, that being said, spiritual without, but not religious is the fastest growing spiritual orientation in the United States. Um, people like Joe Dispenza are wildly popular. Um, 
and he has a spirituality that's based on neuroscience, group dynamics, um, healing, and, and, and psychology. So I think it's happening, actually. Now, the problem, of course, is that um, there's also a huge amount of social isolation in this country. Vivek Murthy, uh, Obama's uh, um, Surgeon General, said that social isolation was the, the number one health problem in the United States, more than cancer, more than heart disease, more than diabetes. And if I could interject, uh, I think all the texting and tweeting and twatting and twitting is not helping. No, it's not. It's an interesting thing. You know, a nine-month-old child, can uh, infants before 12, can learn to discern almost any kind of sound. But they can only learn it from a human being. You can show them a video or an audio of somebody doing different sounds. Human infants won't learn how to discern those sounds. It has to be delivered in the inner subjectivity of person to person. So development is included in transcend. We never lose that. And so the, it is alarming to have a class full of kids looking at screens. What, yes. what, I, what I want is a class full of kids, one, running around until you know they feel like they want to sit down, and then looking at somebody's face. And in the interplay, the inner subjectivity, face-to-face, person-to-person, having a learning experience, and then turning around, teaching it to the kid next to them. Um, now, a lot of people that do education these days do that. Um, I was teaching in Brazil this year, and when I was talking to my friends who were bringing me over there to, to teach, they said our program is is 60% process, personal transformation. It's 20% content content, and 20% skills. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's for, beautiful. That's for adults. Yeah, and, and, and they deliver in their program. In 14 months, on average, the people in that program grow one developmental level on their self-life. You know, nothing That's else. Pretty impressive. Oh, nothing else besides transcendental meditation over several years has ever had that kind of effect developmentally. And so that's one of the reasons that I actually got in a plane, flew 21 hours to Brazil to teach, because I was impressed enough with them and and, and glad that they enjoyed my material. So I was over there doing that as, as recently as February. That's beautiful. Well, so on every level, it's called the model imperative. Uh, we go through critical periods in our lives where we're neurologically available to to learn something. You know, language in the first two years, um, moral behavior in the first four or five years, um, how to think critically in the first 11 years, um, you know, how to evaluate data in the first 17 years, how to develop a separate sense of self between 18 and 22 in the last stages of adolescence. These are critical periods. But in every single new capacity, we need a model of someone that embodies the capacity that we're learning to be able to grow into the direction of that model. When, when I decided to be a healer and a warrior, I had the Shotokan people, which the traditional Japanese karate, which was very much based in Zen Buddhism. I had Mr. Oshimu, who was the head of that thing, as a model. And I had the therapist that my parents and I went to as a model. And so I grew in those directions with them guiding me because they embody qualities that, that my nervous system said I wanted to um, absorb. 
if we don't have those models, we pass through that critical period, and then it becomes enormously harder to develop those new capacities. And that's true at every level. That's true when your first child is born. When your first child is born, you and your partner are wide open. Okay, that's a that was my great- first enlightenment experience. By the way, there you go. Watching my watching my son come out of the birth canal, I had a complete union with the universe. It 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 was. And when I had my first samadhi meditating, I was 35, but I immediately experienced the same. Well, it it would be very close to a non-dual experience because I was so deep into the universe. I felt as though I was the stars breathing and I was looking at the earth, but I was, I was the light of us, of, of all the stars. I was everywhere and nowhere at once. And when I came back into my body, it was like uh, I had jumped from the roof. It was a, sh- a shock. But uh, watching my son come out of the birth canal, I was—I had just turned eighteen, wow. and I had a full-on, profound spiritual experience right there. Uh, you know, I always love hearing people describe a samadhi experience because you can't really describe it. But the metaphors, no. the metaphors everybody comes up with are just so beautiful. You know, I, I was the sun under the stars. I was jumping off of the roof. Yeah. You know? And it, yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, those, those experiences guide you, Paul. They, they guide they your do. spiritual practice, and they guide your parenting, and they guide your loving. Um, they got, they're well, it guides. Made, it, made me, it made me much more critical of... And this is going to play right into our next conversation coming right up here. It made me much more critical of people's ideas of what God is or what God wants and, and all that sort of stuff, because I had a profound union experience that showed me that God is everything and everyone and everywhere and nowhere simultaneously, and that the and that the only way you could know what God wants is to become God. And if you do become God, there's nothing you can know because I didn't even know I was me until I actually was coming back into my body. And then I had this shocking revelation from a, I I was able to have a subject object awareness of what had happened to me, but there was such a powerful imprint. It's almost like when you look at a strobe light and then you close your eyes and all you can see is this brightness the brightness never went away. Yeah. And so I, I got imprinted, you could say, with the experience of oneness, not duality. And then the impossibility is to, to try to describe it with language because that puts you into du- a, a duality. But fortunately, I've had, you know, probably 150 of them since then, largely due to uh, my spiritual practices and due to the need to be out in nature. And also, uh, you know, I'm a medicine man and spirit guide and I've done over 400 ceremonies to help people heal with plant medicines. And I have a lot of experience with plant medicine. So I've had many samadhis doing Tai Chi meditation and was able to correlate those experiences with the plant medicines. And really, uh, they take you to the same place that, you know, I think people can if plant medicines are used intelligently, they can really fast track your awareness of who and what you really are. And I think that's another conversation we could have, but yeah, I agree um, with that by the way, you know, I, th- I think that 
there's there's as many ways to God as there are people on the planet at any given time. But uh, my only point is just that that experience first came on with the birth of my son, which is totally congruent with what you're sharing. Yeah. And, and, and first of all, I love it. I love it that, that, that one, one of the great things of the shamanic traditions is that they're embodied. Okay. Plant yes, medicine, they are. Plant medicine takes you right into your body. Okay, yeah. I'm in. I'm in my body. Okay, so it's this is not this is not a thought person connecting with the, with the infinite. This is a bodied an embodied person connecting with the infinite. There's something more real and visceral about that, and I think that's what pulls us into those kinds of. I have I've had similar experiences um, both with medicine and and with with tai chi, and also I just want to point out, you know, where did, where have those experiences led you? They've led you to love and service and to self-care. Yes. Okay. okay there's a direction. Yep. There's a directionality to spirituality. It's not random. There's a directionality to unity with God. It's not random. As people have these experiences, as they evolve, they want to serve. They want to love. They want to love well. Um, and they want to do self-care in every level. And they want to be less bullshit and more real. Okay. That's, yes. that's, what, that's where it guides us. All the developmental lines, as you ascend them, converge, and they converge towards that. They converge towards unity. They converge towards love. They they converge towards more authenticity and care and compassion and less bullshit. And that's what we yes. Like. You know, I I I've studied uh, a lot on world religion, comparative religion, and all sorts of stuff because I've spent thirty six years working as a therapist and coach and life coach. And I've found so many, you know, my belief is what my, my practice and my work has taught me that behind every behavior or action is a belief. And when I track people's beliefs back to the core beliefs that are behind them, it very frequently gets to some idea about what God wants or what they learned in religion. And so when I tell people the difference between religion and spirituality, I Tell them spirituality summarized is a connection to a greater whole. And the more spiritually evolved you are, the more you realize yourself as an expression of a progressively greater whole until you realize that everything and everyone is somehow magically and mysteriously an expression of yourself. But unfortunately, what I call corporate religion does not teach that because so much of it is at the uh, literal and ethnocentric level and they yeah. don't understand the allegories outside of their own ethnocentrism and the inspirational element of it is, is there, but it's also only there within the confines of their ethical structure. Mm -hmm. So for me, spirituality really is uh, one of the most key medicines that I think we need to move into worldwide because of its capacity to help you heal racism and help you heal differences and to uh, explore nonviolent approaches and to realize that we all need each other and that we're all here as part of a cosmic puzzle. And, you know, I, I tell people that have these problems with racism and, and, you know, anti everything, whether it be, war-based or whatever, is that, you know, I ask them, what do you believe God is? And most people believe God is 
some kind of a whole or or unconditional love. And I said, well, if you believe that, then you got to realize the the person that you're so um, disgruntled with or that you don't like is actually from the same source as you. And that would be a spiritual approach to realize that many of the things that you don't like are really aspects of yourself that you don't want to um, address or realize, and, and you're projecting them out. And that's what I, I love about your Shadow and Light book. And um, I've done Robert Augustus Masters' work on shadow work and Robert A. Oh, yeah. Johnson's work. And so I, I think part of spirituality is really shadow work because when you get down inside yourself, if you're brave enough to find, you know, the dark people, the Hitlers, the Charlie Mansons and whoever inside of yourself, the devil, you know, you can work with when you've got an objective awareness of the potentials that lurk in you. A lot of people completely deny that there might be a rapist lurking inside of them or whatever it might be. And I say, well, you just, you're just, you're actually not tapping deep enough into yourself. Cause if you go deep into yourself, you find everybody there. And I mean, everybody and everything. And when you are able to acknowledge the potentials there, and then it, the, the urge to act in ways that might be partially or wholly reflective of some of the things that you criticize and judge. Now you have the ability to navigate it. You can say, ah, there's that part of me that wants to, you know, maybe not get a woman's per permission to have sex with her or whatever. And then you actually have a chance to recognize everything inside of you that you didn't realize was there, which I think is extremely healing and really enhances the accuracy of our inner compass. I agree. That's radical acceptance. But but you see, radical acceptance is not radical indulgence. It's radical and self-acceptance. No, yes. And so, yes, that, you know, that wise self that got constellated when we were young, that's always there and developing as we develop. Um. And so more and more, we feel a moral imperative to say, yeah, I, I can radically accept all the destructive aspects of myself, basically based on the drives. You know, denying the drives is crazy. Um, the human beings, at our best, what we do is we take the drives and we turn them into art. And with the most basic drive in humans is to drive to affiliate, to drive to connect with other people. And it's not as simple is saying, okay, I'm, I'm projecting my negative side onto you and then wanting to, you know, attack you or defend from you. I also have to deal with you, okay? You know, if I'm in a relationship and I, I can be aware of my projections, but if I'm aware of my projections, then I'm still left with the question of how do I manage this relationship? How do I want to manage it? Um, what's the nature of it? Um, what serves the highest good in this relationship? Um, how is my trauma history and your trauma history affecting us as well as my hopes and dreams and my desires and my drives affecting us? I mean, these are all necessary components of uh, an intimate relationship, particularly of the primary relationship, you know, the, the, the marriage, the modern marriage, the friendship, the love affair, and the capacity to heal injuries. And the, we, we don't have, we have instincts to relate. We don't have instincts to, that necessarily guide us to superior related. We have to grow in our capacities for superior related. We have to guide our instincts to be able to, to engage in more sophisticated forms and dominance and submission, for instance, until those forms make it to our unconscious and they become our reflexive ways of dealing with other people.
And we do that through conscious awareness, through intent, through changing our habits of consciousness and our habits of relating, and through being aware of our constructive and destructive shadow and taking responsibility for all of it, just as we're having radical responsibility for all of it. Now, you know, that's really complicated. Uh, yeah. you know, my, my editors would keep saying to me, Keith, stop saying it's complicated. I'm going, look. I understand that you want me to say I have a simple solution to a lot of problems. Sorry, I don't have a simple solution to a lot of problems. I can take any aspect of the million facet aspect of, of most any aspect of the million facet aspect of human functioning and talk about principles and practices that can improve someone someone's ability to be more healthy on that aspect but that aspect is happening with the other rest of the million simultaneously and and so dealing with all those things simultaneously is very very difficult and it's especially difficult when we're doing it with other people who are doing the same thing as they're relating with us and so when i did loving completely i have the reason that I, I did a relationship book when there's a million great relationship books is that my experience was that every single one of those, to a certain extent, was the, the author getting super excited about their approach to creating love and intimacy and unconsciously avoiding other central dimensions of life that needed to be factored in to loving completely. And that's why Loving Completely is the title of the book. That, that, that these other factors eventually will show up. Spirituality shows up. Um, how we parent other people shows up. Eroticism always shows up. Um, whether we're maintaining our, our, our physical or emotional health shows up. Um, whether we're able and willing to do what it takes to get back to love when there's conflict, that shows up. Whether we have some kind of deep purpose is based in our sense of the sacred, that shows up. Those things show up and need to be attended to. If we don't attend to them in ourselves and support them being attended to in our partner, our relationships tend to degrade. And, you know, like any other institutions, if they degrade and we don't renew them, when we don't allow for them to continue to improve, um, then they create predictable damage, predictable conflict. And that's why 50% of the marriages of this country end in divorce. Um, it's, it's challenging. The modern, the modern intimate relationship is the most challenging intersubjectivity and the most promise promised it has the most promise of intersubjectivity of any relational form that's ever existed um, in the history of the human race and we we just have the capacity to do it now because we're finally having vast numbers of people with equal power around money around sex around parenting physically um, intellectually around opportunity these, these relationships now have the capacity to have depths of contact and intimacy that other generations didn't have access to. But they're very challenging, and they're, and they're powerful containers, but they're fragile containers. They require integrity, authenticity. They, re, they require people being, being in integrity with each other. Um, they're very challenging. And so loving completely was a way of saying, all right, Here's a way where, where you can start with five dimensions, and there's five questions that, that, that are the tips of five icebergs that are all interconnected. And we can start with those questions and keep monitoring and checking in with those five questions, and that will guide us to the places we need to go to love well, to love ourselves well, to love other people well, to help them do the same.
And that's why I wrote you know, that book. Before we get into those, because I that's well, I definitely want to look at those five elements. Uh, you know, the thing, the word love is like the word God. It means something different to everybody. And and I ran into plenty of my own challenges. Um, and we've all had the experience of telling someone we love them and meaning it, but getting a negative reaction from them because their perception was very different than what we intended it to be. Right. And because of this so being so common in relationships and me finding people have a really hard time loving themselves, I spent uh, several years going into meditation and talking to my soul and asking for guidance to create uh, some form of def- definition that would encapsulate love so that w- when I'm working with my patients and my clients that they that I could say this is exactly what I mean when I use the word love. So the two that my soul gave to me is that love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self and or other and the other one is love is consciousness becoming aware of itself. And so when I'm using the word consciousness there, I have a capital C on it because I'm speaking of the consciousness that is not individual consciousness, like I'm conscious that you're, you and I are talking right now, but it's really more the ground state or just like you have big mind and little mind it's the source of all. So whatever God is, God is obviously conscious or we wouldn't be conscious. So I say that what we think of as unconscious grows into more conscious. We can become more aware of our unconscious instincts. We can become more aware of our unconscious shadow. So that's what I mean when I say love is consciousness, becoming aware of itself. So what I'd like to do is just say, how do you sit with those definitions? And when you're using the word love, what specifically are you intending us to understand? Oh, well, I'm good with those definitions. Um, my definition of, of love starts with, with something that I heard David Data say, you know, many, many years ago. He, he, said, to, he said, love is being at one with. If, yes. I'm at, if I'm at one with nature, I love nature. If I'm at one with you, I'm loving you at this moment. If I'm at one with all the different aspects of myself, I'm loving myself. Um, I'm, I, now, I think that there's stages of self-love that people go through um, um, that are supported better or worse by themselves and their culture. And we can talk about that later if we have to. But, but that sense of being at one with. Because if I'm, a, if I'm at one with the universe, if I damage the universe, I'm damaging myself. And if I support the universe, I'm supporting myself. And same way if I'm at one with you. Now, within the context of that, again, there are, it's, it's like if you take the, that white light and you put a prism on it, which is, and the prism, of course, is the embodied existence, then it breaks up into many, 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 many different colors. And every single mm-hmm. one of those, every single one of those colors has its own demands and its own promises and its own flavors and its own challenges. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also remember, remembering that, that that we are processes. You know, it's not, it's not. It, we're 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 constantly monitoring many many processes, all of them relational. And those relational processes do better from a sense of unity, and they do worse from a sense of separation. And so. To me, I start with at oneness um, is love, and then I kind of move into whatever direction it is that requires attention or that demands attention. 
I love it. And you know what I'm going to do is there were some other things I was going to talk to you about, but we've been going for quite a while and I really want to have a chance to get into these five stars that you have in your course, Loving Completely. Um, so if you, if you want, let's look at what your five stars are, because sure. I, I think that's a very, very important. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I see as a therapist very often, and I alluded to that just a bit ago, is that people really have a hard time loving themselves. I think a lot of autoimmune diseases, I know I've worked with a tremendous number of autoimmune diseases, and I almost always find some kind of a deep sense of guilt or shame or self-blame that is unhealed within a person with an autoimmune disease. And when I can help free that energy up, it becomes available for healing and growth. So I think really learning to love ourselves is one of the most uh, important things because we can't love somebody else more than we can love ourselves, not at least not authentically. So from the perspective of these five stars, can we look at them not only from a relational standpoint with others, but can we look at them also from the relation of loving ourselves? Absolutely. Uh one of my books is called The Gift of Shame. And that title is very deliberate. Shame I is bet. A, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Shame is a social emotion. And it's the basis of morality. So when we're in the when when we are in utero, we are one with the universe. Okay, so we are love. Okay. Yes. Okay, when we're born and we're spiritual. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're expanded. Born. We're one with everything. When we're born and we're physically separate from mother, the experience that the infant has, infants are born only able to move their neck muscles and, and, and their face. Why? So that they can look into the, they can turn their neck, look into their mother's eyes and begin via mirror neuron, neurons to join with her so that all the, so that they can begin to, to wire their neural networks um, in reflection of her love. Okay. And so generally, if you have a functional mother, you spend the first year of your life going, I am loved. So I sh you shift from, from I am everything to I am separate and I am loved. At about 12 months, when kids start wandering around and can experience shame um, and can feel themselves psychologically separate enough from mom that they seek her out or, or dad or somebody for comfort, what they begin to find out when they hear the word no, which American kids hear the word no every eight minutes between the ages of 10 months and 17 months, they now learn that they are loved conditionally. Yes. Yeah, mom loves me unless I'm kicking my brother. And then I see a look of disapproval on her face. And then mm -hmm. I react to that look of disapproval as if she's turned into a stranger and I feel shame. And... And I'll look down and I'll freeze and I'll blush and I'll do the things that kids do when they're, when they're ashamed. And then there'll be, there'll be social learning that takes place. And then when we develop theory of mind, um, two and a half years old, three years old, we can look at ourselves and then we start to love ourselves conditionally. Okay. I love myself conditionally. If I'm doing what I believe is right, I've, I can love myself. But if I don't, I feel this same emotional guilt or later on at four or five moral disgust. Well, then later on, as we continue to develop, we have to, we can't go back to not having a mind and having a separate self like we were when we were in utero. We need to go forward. 
So I go forward in understanding there's things that I learned that were right and wrong. But as I learn, as I as my moral sense evolves, I begin to see that there's relativistic values. And so I'll feel ashamed when I screw something up, I think. But then I'll look at that shame and I'll go, okay, I'm violating a value of some sort. So I need to follow that value. I need to to not follow that value, which generally doesn't work. Or I need to refine that value so that I can feel more at peace with myself, more at one with myself. And as we do that, we begin to expand and we begin to go, okay, well, I can love myself conditionally and I can see when I'm not. I can make an adjustment and get back to unity with myself, get back to love. As we begin to widen our embrace, eventually at some point we have moments like the moment you had when your son was born, where, wow, now I feel one with everything again. But this isn't because I don't have a self or a personality. It's because at this moment I've transcended myself and my personality. I am back to I am love. Now, how do we work that into relationships? Um, Because we're in relationships all the time. Um, Well, part of it is recognizing that we're always in relationship with ourselves and with other people. And if we pay attention to the developmental um, processes that I just described, I'm aware when I get guilty and instead of avoiding the guilt or developing a, a doing transference or projective identification or kick the dog or any of that stuff. I process it in a way that helps me grow. I'm now using the shame emotions as guides. They become gifts. And eventually I might get guilty because I didn't meditate this morning. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's my shame self guiding me on my spiritual path. You know, that's not the end of the world. Or I might feel guilty if I didn't compliment my wife on her new dress. And then I'll compliment her on her new dress and feel better. Um, now, the inner relationships in this sense, you can see how the relationships with ourselves are always mirroring and interfacing with our relationships with others, other people. So loving completely means I got to be loving myself if I'm loving you. And I got to be loving myself if I'm going to receive love from you. People that can't receive love from another person in certain ways are not loving themselves in those areas. And, and an awful lot of the work that I've done, uh, particularly with couples, is someone is just not receiving the other person's offer of, of love. And we stop everything. Well, wait a minute. You know, he just told you that he that he he admires the way that you take care of yourself around your sister. And you, it kind of passed over. She says, Well, thank you. I go, Well, wait a second. Do you feel any pleasure at what he just said? She'll go, Well, no. And I go, Well, just let it in. Do you feel any pleasure now? Well, yeah, I feel a little bit. Well, where do you feel it? I feel it in my heart. Okay, so now if you feel that pleasure, you are now receiving what he just offered. If you're not feeling the pleasure, you're not receiving it. And so now that moment, how do you feel as she receives your compliment? He goes, I feel closer to her. I feel more at one with her. I go, so we just have a little moment of love here. Okay, great. So this is a template for your development as a couple. You know, if someone says something great to you and you're not feeling any pleasure, you go, wait a second, let me let that in. Okay. And as you let it in, look at their face. They'll relax and feel more loved by you as you take the time to receive what they offered you. Okay. Now, that, it's really hard to do that because we all have these defensive states that show up and cause all kinds of damage. And that's the repairing injury part of relationships. So bringing that back into the five stars, 
how do you how do the question and the challenge how do you teach people how to access all this information when they need it it's you have to start in most therapy and most wisdom tradition to do this you start from the very simple go to the complex go to the simple and so the way that i suggest people do it is they start by asking five questions about other people and then asking those five questions about themselves now, the five questions about other people are designed to evaluate your relationship with that other person. The first question is, is there an erotic polarity between me and this other person? In other words, we always have energetic polarities with other people. Sometimes there's an erotic field from like a masculine pole to a feminine pole. Is there an erotic polarity with this person? Okay, yes, no, fine. That's, that's one question. And that leads into, if there is, that leads into how we negotiate that erotic polarity. The when second, you're using the word, oh, sorry, before you jump, though, when you're using the word erotic, it, it's, you know, most of us associate that with sex. But, like, you know, I have a sense of love and connection to you. Mm-hmm. And if there's something erotic, it's more, I would say, the excitement you know, sex is reproduction and growth. And so what's erotic about my relationship with you is that uh, getting together with you gives me a chance to grow and a chance to get opinions and perspectives from somebody that I trust and appreciate and respect as a teacher, as a leader, and as someone who really is the real deal, not just a bunch of $10 words. So does, does the use of erotic only relate to a sexual charge or is it something along the lines of what I'm sharing in my feelings for you? Well, what you're sharing is an energetic polarity between us, a pleasurable inner subjectivity, but, you know, and and maybe, but there's, there's, there is no sexual component to me and probably no sexual component to you. Okay. There still is a pleasurable energetic polarity between us. Um, it's the difference between scratching your back and being sexually titillated. Scratching yeah. my back is enormously, ple- you know, my wife scratches an itchy spot on my back. That's an enormously pleasurable intersubjective activity, but it doesn't yes. have any, it doesn't have any eroticism to me. Okay. But it's right. a, it's a, it's a polarity. Okay. Now the reason why I had the erotic polarity as a question is that I was, uh, I was using this originally and still to this day, for people to evaluate relationships with a partner or a potential partner. Right. And if you're going to have a partnered relationship, there needs to be an erotic polarity between you and and that person between either your masculine and feminine or their, their masculine and feminine. Usually the the erotic charge goes uh, masculine to feminine, feminine to masculine. And that sometimes usually tracks off of male and female, but not always. If you don't have that, you can have a friendship, but you're not going to have a love affair. You know, and right. so if you're evaluating, you know, a life partner or evaluating a potential lover, is there is there that spark of erotic polarity? If it's there, notice it. If it's not there, okay, notice that. Um, uh, this is a big deal with couples uh, for a variety of reasons that I can get into later because uh, I want to finish with the five questions. But, but because the way people are programmed to bond sexually, romantic infatuation is an urgent sexuality. Intimate bonding after six to months to two years, there's less urgent sexuality, but there still is erotic polarity. But that erotic polarity really requires consciousness to be sustained and expanded. 
Americans are not taught how to do this. And because they're not how to do this, there's a lot of problems with affairs and breaks ups and that kind of stuff. Because they don't realize that as you hit that part of the relationship, it requires consciousness on both your side to have a love affair where that, that erotic polarity is nurtured, like a, like a little fire. You know, you nurture a fire by feeding it twigs and sticks and stuff. But you nurture erotic polarity by being aware of it and recognizing that's a resource in our relationship that we need to maintain. You know, my wife and I have seven, are 70. We met when we were 23. We've been nurturing and maintaining that fire of erotic polarity ever since. Okay, that's required a lot of consciousness. Um, yes, and so that's that's an important dimension. And so the first question is: there erotic polarity between me and this other person? And also, that's a first question because if there's a lot of erotic polarity, what that's tended to do with a lot of people is they tend to not ask other questions, and you know yes. that's a problem. So there's some mm-hmm. other questions you should be asking, and here's one of them. The, uh, does this person take care of their physical and psychological health? Now, taking care of your physical and psychological health doesn't mean that you're super healthy all the time, but it means that if there's a physical problem, you take care of it. You work to resolve it. If there's a psychological problem, you work to resolve it. You don't deny it, project it, try to medicate it away, any of that stuff. Does this person take care of their physical and psychological health is the second question. The third question is, if I'm in a relationship with this person, there's conflict, are they able and willing to do what it takes to get back to love? Do I think that's have- one of the most important. That, that right there is, you know, having coached countless peoples myself, because a lot of people's diseases track right back to their uh, partner relationships, marriage or boyfriend, girlfriend, right. long-term relationships. So I find that's very rare that I work with someone that has a serious health crisis that doesn't have a relationship crisis. And uh, a lot of people, I've seen countless cases where one partner really wants to work on the relationship, but the other one doesn't. They want to be in the relationship, but they don't want to work on the relationship. In other words, they're afraid to be alone or, you know, I won't. You're, you're a highly skilled therapist. I don't need to tell you all the reasons that people want to be in the relationship without participating in it, but it's a real problem. And, and I think uh, that as a question for screening who to be in an intimate and potentially long-term relationship is one of the most important questions you can ask. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with couples like that, uh, maybe 30% about my practice as couples, um, for the person that's more resistant, I'll ask them, um, so do, do you want to, to be able to, to engage with your partner to get back to love when you're sitting here hating each other, being disgusted with each other, dismissive of each other? And often the person will say, yeah, I mean, they, they, they made it into my office, so probably they do. And I'll go, well, I can teach you how to do it, but it's going to be really hard, okay? It's, this is not easy. And it's going to be hard because right now what you're wired to do is to not do what it takes to get back to love. What you're doing right now is to try to get back to love by essentially attacking or leaving your partner. And neither one of those works, but you're compelled to do it. And, you know, until you recognize that you're compelled to do it, destructive shadow, um, you won't be able to say, hmm, I'm compelled to do it, but there's a better way. And then I can teach you some better ways. Let's do those better ways. Let's practice them. Go home and practice them. And now it's, it's of course, complicated by the fact that they have a partner who says, yeah, I want you to learn it right now. And you have to turn to that partner and go, 
Yeah, they can be interested in learning it right now, and they can learn some skills right now, but these kinds of changes take time, which require patience. And that's part of being able. Uh, being able to get back to love means being patient with your partner appropriately. So able and willing to get back to love. That's the second question, are they? The third question, and uh, uh, the fourth question, that's the third question. The fourth question is, would this person show up appropriately for a parent, for a child or a family member? Appro- show up appropriately is the relevant part of that. Mm-hmm. I remember when I told my daughter this when she was 16, she says, look, I don't want to have babies with the guy. I just want to date him. And I said, <laughs> I said, I understand that, Zoe, but. But if a guy wouldn't show up appropriately for a child or for a family member, then at some point he's not going to show up appropriately for you. Okay? And so would this person show up appropriately for a child or a family member? And if the answer is yes, that's a good sign. The answer is no. doesn't mean you don't date the guy, but it, it does mean you have a conversation about it. Okay, that's the What's fourth. your daughter's name? Zoe. Zoe. My that's my daughter's name, too. Oh, there you go. Here we are. How cool is that? That's totally cool. That's totally cool. The, this, this, the original conversation about these five stars happened in a conversation where she asked me, what do I look for in a guy? I said, well, Zoe, there's these questions you should ask yourself about the guy. And uh, the fifth question is, does this person have deep purpose that's sacred to them? Something that's more important to them than themselves. Something that's bigger than themselves. And do they find your deep purpose, what's sacred to you, do they find that admirable? You know, do they appreciate that in you? Because if someone doesn't admire and appreciate what's sacred to you, that's going to be a problem. And if they don't have something that's larger than themselves, ultimately that'll be a problem. Yes, it will. <laughs> yeah, there, I assure you that. There you go. So there's the voice of experience I'm hearing over there. Yeah. Okay, so so that's those five questions. Now, what happens if you ask those five questions about anybody, and you know, your you're unconscious will give you answers right away. You can think of some random person down the street. Ask yourself those five questions about them, and you'll have answers. Now, those answers won't be perfect, but they'll be pretty good. We take an enormous amount of information about other people in a moment, in a second. People that knew somebody for 15 or 20 seconds had about as much data about that person, had as much judgment about their character as people that knew somebody for four or five weeks. Um, and so asking those questions, those questions about other people essentially is developing sense organs to notice these dimensions in other people. Asking them about yourself is developing sense organs to notice these characteristics in yourself. And if I'm supporting erotic polarity with me and another person in a healthy way, great. If I'm supporting it in an unhealthy way, that's causing problems. Um, Or if I'm denying it, which is a way of supporting it in an unhealthy way. If I'm not taking care of my physical or psychological health at this moment, that's a problem. If I am, that's a good thing. Um, In the same way with someone else. Am I able and willing to get back to love? Am I willing? Am I? would I show up appropriately for a child or, or a family member? Do I have deep soul's purpose? And am I admiring and appreciative of other people's? Okay, so you, pr- you ask yourself these questions, and what it does is develop these sense organs of noticing these, these dimensions. And so at some point, you're walking down the street, and you see somebody, and you go, well, there's a little spark of erotic polarity. 
Okay. Or you're walking down the street and you see a family and you go, wow, those are, those are good parents. I was in the airport once. There were three kids and a, and a couple. Everybody was all tired and wasted. But they were really, really operating like a team. You know, and they were good with the kids. Three developmental levels of the kids, really appropriate and healthy with all of them. I couldn't help myself. I, I was passing the woman. I said, you guys are really good parents. You know, she just looked shocked. Nobody tells you that in an airport. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't help myself. Okay. So if you, so, so this, this was the beginning of a book, this 400 page book. I mean, it's, it's, now there's, there's, there's incredible nuances to these five dimensions. But if you're paying attention to these dimensions on a day-to-day basis, um, and if there's a problem, you bring that to your partner's attention and you address that problem so you're making progress, you're taking care of your relationship. If you're addressing these dimensions with someone that you're about to date, um, and if there's a problem, you talk to them about it. And if you feel better about them as a result of the talk, good. And if you feel worse about them, that's not a good sign. It'll guide you to more appropriate candidates. Um, and if you teach these things to your children, it'll help your children learn how to love well. And that's why these five questions, I call them the five stars, are the orienting uh, dimensions to, de- to dive into all the other dimensions that are involved in loving completely. And of course, spirituality is in what's sacred. Um, raising children or is in showing up for a parent and a child member. Um, uh, all the physical and psychological stuff involved in sleep and diet and health and exercise and rest and so on is involved in taking care of your physical and psychological health. And you can see how this goes. Um, yeah. You know, if I could interject as, as I'm listening to you and looking at the, uh, the five questions, and I don't want to sidetrack us with a long, deep discussion because I want to be able to get through the other things, but I do think it's important for me to share what's rising in me. And that is pretty much all the negative responses of these five questions can be tracked uh, back to um, attachment syndromes. Oh yeah, yeah. It's big. I have two or three chapters. And, you know, I believe in having short chapters. People people enjoy short chapters in books like this. Um, uh, an awful lot of of several chapters on attachment. Um, uh, now. <laughs> There are some people that base their systems of understanding couples and treating couples almost purely on attachment theory. Susan Johnson's one of them. Um, and it's not a bad way of approach to working with couples and understanding couples. Certainly, it's a, it's a necessary understanding, either intuitively or actually, about raising babies. Because yes. overwhelmingly, the, the research is... Um, uh, all kids are born able to securely attach. That there's no genetic predisposition for secure attachment. Um, there are genetic predispositions for temperaments that have difficulty uh, attaching, but everybody is predetermined. Everybody is genetically programmed to be securely attached. Um, the, now, to do that with a with a with a a, a parent. An infant needs a parent that's present with them, that's with them physically, that's congruent, that that is that is aware of their own emotions, um, and is 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 appearing to the infant as someone that's a congruent person, an authentic person, um, and shows up. Shows up is contingent, 
In other words, contingent is if the baby needs you to be calm, you're calm. If the baby needs you to, to take care of some physical thing, you take care of some physical thing. You're contingent. You're attuned to the child. But also is marked. Marked is you let the kid know. If the kid's angry, you go, oh, you're angry, and you make an angry face. But even a two-month-old kid will know when you do that, that extra little, uh, you're angry, or that extra little squinch in your face, you're not really angry. What you're communicating is empathic resonance with the child's anger. And when the child feels that empathic resonance, what do they do? They relax. So if you have mm-hmm. a parent that's present, congruent, contingent, and marked in that fashion, that child will be securely attached. In their deepest heart, they'll feel like, I know how to love and be loved. I know how to show up and, and have someone show up for me. Okay? Now, you can learn how to be securely attached. You can do it through an intimate relationship with somebody that you care a lot about. Sometimes it can be a therapist or a coach or a teacher or somebody. But, you know, if you don't have that, kids that don't have that will have insecure attachment, which which creates defensive structures that are more difficult. Everybody has defenses, but the insecure attachment defenses are more deeply rooted. Um, And they'll have trouble loving. Kids will be either dismissive, you know, they will disconnect from other people because they didn't have a contingent caregiver or they'll be um, ambivalent and anxious. They won't have a consistent uh, caregiver. And so um, they're not easily soothed um, and they're clinging. Um, and then yeah. these characteristics will, and, and then a few of them, if they have abusive caregivers or neglectful caregivers will be disorganized and they'll just dissociate and fall to pieces. These, these capacities develop the defense, defensive structures that then continue to, to amplify until we're teenagers and we can self-observe and begin to regulate them. And it's a big deal. And everybody, when they marry somebody or you have a lover, you're wanting secure attachment with that person. Now, the problem, of course, is when we have secure attachment with another person and we lose it because our nervous system feels threatened, we blame them. I mean, that's just the the very first defense is, it's not my fault. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's the ego trying to protect itself. Yeah. It can't be me. It's got to be. So if it's not me, got to be you. Okay. Yeah. And, and you're always half right. Okay. Actually, it is half your problem. Maybe not half, but it's partially your problem. Okay. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is my power is not in your part of the problem. My power is in my part of the problem. And so am I able and willing to get back to love? Well, the first rule of getting back to love is stay in my court. You know, what's my part of this problem? What am I willing to do about it to get back to love with you? Okay. And I, how can I support you in you doing the same? Not challenge you to do the same or, or coerce you to do the same or force you to do the same. How can I support you in doing the same? And that's a hard lesson to learn. Because when we get upset, our nervous system says, separate from that person, run or attack. Those are defensive states. They're, they're biologically determined. We all have them. We all have to deal with them. I call it the integration of defensive line, line of development. As we progress on that line of development, we become more aware of those and we can regulate those, those defensive states in the states of, of healthy response to the present moment, socially engaged states. But that requires radical self-awareness, and it requires the capacity to recognize, even though this state feels absorbing to me, there's a better state, a state of compassion and understanding that I need to reach for. 
And as we reach for it, we'll find it the more we reach for it. And the more we reach for it and find it, the better our relationships will be. I, I, I love it. And um, one of the things that I found helpful uh, from studying and applying attachment theory is, you know, as you know, working through attachment syndromes and the challenges of love and relationships really does require a fair bit of commitment and a fair bit of time. I tell people when they want to coach with me, if you're not in for at least a year, I won't work with you because I've found that it takes at least a year of committed practice to get to the roots and really do some real growing. There's other people out there that'll do short stuff and that's fine, but I, I just don't want to work that way because after 36 years, my philosophy is I'm, I'm, I'm here to help people heal so they can really contribute to the world. I'm not here to give you quick fixes and medicate um, because then you just become dependent upon me like a mechanic is, uh, people depend on mechanics to fix their car cause they don't know anything about cars or like, uh, physical therapists that, uh, help people get rid of their pain, but don't teach them how to lift properly. Right. Exactly. So what I, what I find is that when, when I work with couples or even people that are having problems that I'm not working with their family, but I can see there's problems connected to the family. It's just to help them identify their attachment style and identify their partner's attachment style so that they actually understand why the partner is avoidant or why they throw tantrums when little things go wrong. And I found just that awareness itself helps them see their partner through the eyes of more understanding because now they realize it's not that they're necessarily attacking them, but that's the way they learn to relate through the challenges of their upbringing. And therefore, they don't feel so likely to take it personally and they have an awareness that it's something they can work on together. Yeah. Well, well several things. First of all, um, the dimensions in integral theory are the quadrants, levels, lines, states, and types. And I'm, I'm not going to explain them all, but, I, but, but types is one of them. And we are many types of people. And one of the types we are is we have a particular uh, attachment style in our intimate relationships that we tend to go towards. And it, and it always helps um, people to understand their own type of person. Um, the Enneagram is a popular typology system that we all use, um, or most of us use. Um, but there's other ones. Um, introvert, extrovert is a typology system, and attachment style is a typology system. There's some types that we can't change that much. There's some types that we can. We can become more securely attached, for instance, um, through relationships. Now, in my work, I, I do it somewhat differently from you. You know, being a therapist in private practice since, since forever. Um, you know, people come to me, and I'll do my best to help them. And then I'll tell them what I think that they need to move forward. Some people say, okay, I'll do that. Some people say, no, I don't think I'll do that. I'll do something else. I go, okay. But then they'll call <laughs> me again, and they'll come in, and I'll do my best to help them move forward. Um, yeah. There was a guy named Eric, Eric Byrne who developed a system called transactional analysis that was big in the 70s and then just disappeared, which was a strange thing. It was a good system. There were a lot of people involved in it, and then it just kind of disappeared. I used to teach that in Gestalt therapy back in 77 because Gestalt therapy and transactional analysis fit pretty well together. And Eric Byrne was a gifted therapist. And he said, every time someone comes into my session, I do my absolute best to resolve all their issues in that session. And then they leave and they come back to the next 
session the next week or the next session, and I'll do the same thing. And kind of that's how, how I've been organized in my work. Now, some people, some people, if they're using me to maintain in a, in a, in a, in a life that's not a healthy life, the session becomes about you're using me to maintain yourself in a life that's not a healthy life, in a relationship yes. that's not a healthy relationship. And I don't think that's the best use of my services. Um, and I don't think that's the best life for you. So what do you think of that? And then we look at that. Um, uh, the, the beauty of psychotherapy and the reason I was attracted to it way back in 1965 is that I have a contract to relate deeply and authentically for, for an hour to this person as if they're the most important person to me in the world. I'm essentially married to them for that hour. Um, yeah, I agree. I, 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 I take my work with people seriously. I, I really feel that I have a chance to really impact not only the person I'm coaching with, but every single person they're involved with. And this is one of the things I tell exactly. my students is if you're coaching or doing therapy for money, then people become objects. But if you're doing your work because you realize it's your opportunity to bring more love and more connection and more understanding and more creativity to the world, then it's the most important work in the world. Well, I certainly think it's the most important work. Now, that being said, I charge a lot of money for my time. But then, of course, I live in America where America doesn't take care of you, you know? <laughs> so, right. So, you know, if you're in a capitalist society, you kind of have to rock with the capital, roll with the capitalist, you know, ethos. But yeah, during that hour of time, that's it. That's my job to show up 100%. My job is to love them as completely as I can during that time and to guide them to the best of my ability. And and I find that deeply satisfying and deeply ex to this day I find it super exciting. Um, um, now, you know, psychotherapy isn't the best way for everybody to grow, um, and the the forms of psychotherapy aren't necessarily the best forms. You know, why an hour? Why not? You know, sometimes I'll do two hour sessions or or ninety minute sessions. Um, yeah. Why Why are there constraints in the the, the APA code of ethics for psychologists? Is very interesting. It, it, you know, my license tells me way more things I, that I can't do than things that I can do. You know, I studied Taoist healing for three years, when in 1978 to, to 1981. I'm really not licensed to do Taoist healing, uh, particularly not the form that I learned. Um, but I exist in this culture. I like being a licensed person, and, and that isn't my primary form of healing. And so I'm willing to, you know, make the sacrifice of not using those particular techniques. But you know, those exist and help people. Um, you know, people are complicated, but I have certain things that I provide and I provide them. Um, and, and one of them is teaching people how to love each other. Uh, and, and I know that, that that is something that's a central aspect of the human experience. Because, you know, we're, all, we're relational. We're relational from the very beginning to the very end. Um, and how we do those relationships with ourselves and with other people will determine the, the lived experience. And if they're good, it's going to be a good life. And not just a good life for me. It's going to be a good life for everybody else. Um, and what you said about when I'm working with somebody, I'm working with everybody they know, that is 100% right on. You know, I'm not just working with you. I'm working with your mother and your kids and your, and your, your father and, and the people at work. 
know, I used to record my sessions and send people. I still do it sometimes and send it to send it to their computers. I used to give people cassette recordings, and doing those cassette recordings were really it was useful for me as a young therapist because I knew that anything that I said about another person, they might hear that, and so I, I exactly. I learned to not say anything about somebody that I wouldn't tell them to their face. That's exactly, I do the same thing. Well, and you know, that as a standard really uh, um, biases you towards compassionate understanding. It really biases you against the human tendency to take one bad act from a person and then draw a conclusion about their character from that one bad act. Okay. Yes. Um, now that's a human tendency. It's a defensive tendency. It works really well if you're, uh, um, you know, living as a hunter-gatherer group, and somebody hits you over the head when you look at them funny. Okay. Well, okay. I need to not be around that person. Okay. I'm going to make a, a, a one. I'm going to make a judgment about their character. In modern society, where we have way more complex consciousness than those societies had. And we have more, more, more capacities to relate and resolve issues. Um, I want to look for deeper understanding. And I still might decide to avoid somebody if I determine that they're dangerous. But it's not going to be because of one thing. It's going to be because of, uh, I've gone for a deeper understanding of them as a human being. Um, and so part of that is, yeah, we're, all, we're not just, really, we're not treating one person. We're treating the whole universe every time we're treating a person. We're just doing it through the, the, the portal of this particular incarnation. Um, yes. You know, I have a lot of questions I wanted to ask you, but uh, you and I have, have this natural tendency to just get into it, and, and I absolutely love it. So what I would love to do is schedule a, another follow-up interview with you and get into some more stuff and maybe some of the issues in some of your other books. But to close out, um, I'd like to talk about something that you say in your book. And that is um, basically that all love involves suffering. And a lot of people really have a hard time with that reality. So, you know, my experience is that it's there. And I believe pain and suffering quicken consciousness and are great uh, ways of inspiring and motivating us to grow and to, you know, not keep repeating behaviors that hurt. Uh, so I would love it if maybe you could just expand a little bit on that statement, all love involves suffering so that people can realize maybe that the suffering that comes through love is actually um, not always a bad thing. Well, first of all, you're 100% right, in my opinion. It's not always a bad thing. Second of all, let's just go back to, to Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths. What's the first one? Life is suffering. Uh, Samsara. Life is suffering. Okay. That and uh, impermanence. Impermanence. <laughs> um, and, and he goes on, but there's a solution. And the solution is, one, mindful awareness, compassionate understanding, and, and, then, and then all the rights, right action, right livelihood, right connection. Basically, he's going through the five stars, right everything, right relating. Okay. Yeah, when we're intimate with someone, the more intimate we are, the more our history gets revealed in our inner subjectivity. If you have a defensive state that's constellated for whatever reason, if, then my nervous system will constellate a complementary defensive state automatically. I won't decide to do that. My nervous system will do that, and I will become aware of it a second, a second and a half after it happens, and then. It's all a matter of what I do with it. 
Most of us do not know how to cultivate an awareness of that defensive state and to regulate it into social engagement, into compassionate understanding. We have to learn how to do that. And everybody has to learn how to do that, but especially in relationships. And the closer we are with people, the more intimate we are, the more our primitive defenses are going to come out. And that involves suffering. And even if you get along super great with your partner and you, and you love each other easily and you easily resolve fights back into, into wonderfulness stuff, then you have a kid. <laughs> All right? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you have to do that with a kid. And I, I don't care how great your kid is. You know, my son was – most I, most people with more than one kid have an easy one and a hard one. You know, my son was easier and my daughter was harder. You know, they're both doing great, but, you know, she was harder. Okay, so I had to learn how to be a good parent to someone who it was hard for me to parent, who had issues that were similar to the issues I had when I was her age and that they re-stimulated me. And then I had to learn how to regulate those things better in myself and how to deal in a better way with her and to forgive myself for the mistakes I made not being really good at that. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, so all that stuff involved suffering. Okay, so, so love inv- always involves suffering. If you care about somebody, that involves suffering because if they get hurt, then you're hurt. If they're in danger, then you're in danger. Okay. Now, along those lines, the more we grow, the more we have to, to recognize that being alive is suffering. Yeah, you know, um, there's a lot of problems going on in the United States right now. Okay. And that hurts me. But, you know, I was hurting before because of the problems that were going on in Syria and the problems that were going on in Somalia and the problems that were going on in, in Los Angeles, in inner cities. In, okay, we, we, need, I don't, we need to not be overwhelmed with that, but we need to feel it. Okay? Because if we yeah. feel it, it means we care. And so part of being a complex human being is to have that be one of the notes that's always ringing in that choir of consciousness that we are, but not the loudest note. It's just one of the notes that helps guide us into love and service. And that's particularly relevant with the people that we love with our relationship. You know, our primary relationship is super, super important because that's basically our tribe generally is is this one other person and maybe two or three others. Some people will have more, but basically that couple relationship. And it's, that's a very fragile tr- tribe. Okay? And so when that's threatened, however it's threatened, it hurts. And tolerating that pain, reaching for compassion, resolving issues, being able to tolerate the kinds of losses and traumas that happen in that, in that is part of being um, a human being, developing and evolving. Um, and so that's why love involves suffering. Yeah, it's profound and and beautiful and true. And one of the things that you said about the importance of feeling, and I think we're in such a mental culture, and as you know from Jung's four functions of consciousness, thinking and feeling are complementary opposites, but the more thinking you do, the less feeling you tend to do. And we're so trapped in our head. I think if we don't allow ourselves to feel the pain of other people, even if they're on the other side of the planet or earthquake victims or what have you, then our tendency is to just see them as an idea, uh, just like, um, you know, maybe um, the idea that there's suffering in the world, the idea that there's starvation in the world. Good. Pass me the butter. 
Um, you know, so if we don't allow ourselves to feel, then we, we sort of start handling people like chunks of data. There's somebody over there suffering, but I, I, I don't feel it. So that's their problem. But if we really, I think as we grow in love, our feeling body opens and we start to actually experience all relationship from a much bigger dimension where we're actually capable of perceiving just like mirror neurons, someone smiles at you, they trigger you to smile. So you feel the experience of the smile that they triggered in you as a response to the relationship. And I think if, if we don't work our way back to our feeling nature, then people just become items on a shelf, like parts off of a vehicle at an auto parts store. And we get to the kind of the situation where we're so mental that we are watching people suffer all over the world on television and iPhones, but we're not really connecting to it at all. It's just like they're just being compartmentalized as a mental process. Yeah, they're objects. Yeah. We are. So, you know, Jung, Jung, was, <laughs> Jung must have been kind of lonely, I think. <laughs> I, think <laughs> I think so, too. I think Jung was lonely. <laughs> you know, his understanding about thinking and feeling is that if I'm using my thinking to avoid my feeling or my feeling to avoid my thinking, that's a problem. If I'm using my feeling to, to enhance my thinking as I use my thinking to enhance my feeling, that's integration. Um, if I use my, my agency to enhance my communion or my communion to enhance my agency, that's health. That's development. If I'm using my agency to avoid communion, and if I'm using communion to avoid agency, that's a problem, okay? And so he knew that. He had an intuitive feel for that. So did Alfred Adler. You know, two, probably the two most gifted therapists that came out of the psychoanalytic movement were Alfred Adler and, and Carl Jung. Um, you know, Adler was the guy who said everything's relationships um, and, mm -hmm. and, and that we need, to, we need to recognize that we have the ability to act in the world and that uh, our fellow beings, our, our fellows, uh, um, our allies, they're not our enemies. Um, you know, he had that seminal understanding. So that's how, if I'm using my thinking to avoid feeling or my feeling to avoid my thinking, my understanding, that's a problem. Now, learning how to discern when you're doing that, that's a developmental milestone. That's, that's if you do the work, at some point you start to know, oh, I'm using my thinking to avoid feeling. I'm using my feeling to avoid thinking. Ah, need to shift until they act synergistically so I'm feeling more and thinking more simultaneously. Deeper understanding plus deeper compassionate, compassionate resonance. And that's health. You know, that, yes. That's health. I really, I really agree with you. I also think someone with Jung's level of depth and wisdom and knowledge uh, tends to feel alone because they're so frequently misunderstood. And, you know, I've read, you know, I've got Jung's collected works. I've been studying it for over 20 years and I'm forever blown away. I've been studying Ken Wilber's collected works for a very long time. You know, I have a very comprehensive library and I devote a lot of my time to my studies and practices, but I've read countless books and articles and things of attacks on Jung. And the most <laughs> common thing I see is they don't have a clue what Jung's really saying. Exactly. They're attacking him. You know, I'm like, you don't even understand anything the guy's saying. You're just making yourself look like a goddamn fool to the rest of us that know what he's actually saying. Yeah. Or somebody who attacks Wilbur. 
You know what? Yeah. What, one of the things I, I told Ken this was, he, every once when I go to Boulder, um, I will hang out with him for a couple of hours. And uh, boy, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, geez. You know, I was, I was so high the first time that he and I hung out for a couple of hours. And I left his loft, got in the car, and proceeded to just get lost in Denver. I mean, I was lost. I couldn't find my way out of the, out of the city because I was just, just – I was so, you know, transposed, transported. And I told him during one of those things, I said, you know, the reason – one of the reasons that I'm so in, in, enchanted with your work is there's only a couple of things that I disagree with about what you said. And you said a million things. And that's pretty amazing, Ken. It's, it's yeah. pretty amazing that you have a system where where someone that is, has, has as much discernment as I have and has studied as much stuff as I have basically says, really can't find anything to substantively disagree with you on pretty much any of, of your positions. Um, and I feel the same way about a lot of the stuff that, that Jung said. Um, and I agree. I, anyway, and also, when you're looking... When you're looking for what's wrong with the system, you're actually unconsciously trying to avoid being influenced by that system. I actually, if I find myself dismissing somebody's system because I don't like the person or because I don't like some aspect of the system, these days I go, okay, Keith, you can't walk away from the system until you find some stuff that's useful and transformative for you personally. And I'll stick with it until I find that. That's fantastic. That's what I call holistic learning. Yeah. And I, and you know, Paul, I'll always find it. I'll, yeah. It's all there. I, I, one of the things I love about Ken Wilbur is, is that you can always find some truth in everything. If you look. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody gets to be right. Nobody gets to be right all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, Keith, what a phenomenal journey this time we've had together. I really, yeah, I just want you to know from me how, uh, personally grateful I am for your commitment to yourself, to your relationships, to your work, and to the world. Uh, it's really clear in your writings. And just like you said of the million things Ken Wilbur teaches, there's only a couple you disagree. I read Loving Completely, and I didn't find myself saying, I disagree, or what the fuck's he talking about here? I just, you know, having a fair bit of life experience I read the book and said, this is someone who really actually knows a lot about love, a lot about relationships, and a lot about life. And uh, I'm just ex excited that I can share you with uh, hopefully a lot of people that didn't realize who you were and can now find your teachings and find you. So uh, closing out, uh, you're still active as a therapist. So how do people find you to book sessions if they want to? And where would you like to direct people for more of your books or resources or anything else you'd like to share? Well, first of all, thank you. And, ba and back at you. <laughs> thank you. And, and, and second of all, you can go to my website, drkeith.com, and I have a lot of stuff there. You can, you can find my eight books there, and go, or you can go to Amazon, find my books. I have a class there called 100 Reasons to Not Have a Secret Affair. Uh, I, uh, uh, and I, 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 you can get an e-copy of that book uh, with that class um, um, that was published uh, um, along with the class. Uh, um, uh, also, I have a series of lectures uh, called the School of Love Lecture Series. Those are four or five bucks a piece. But also, I have an awful lot of talks like this, the talk you and I are having or talks that I've had with Jeff Salzman or with other people. Um, 
I, 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 I like the intersubjectivity of a couple of people uh, engaging, like you and I are engaging, looking for deeper truth. Um, Socrates discovered that in a dialectic uh, 2,500 years ago. And to this day, that is a superior way for, for people to find deeper truths through their interactions with each other. Um, and there's a lot of that on my website. So you guys can go to my website. You can get on my, my email is on my website and you can, you can get on my email and you can, if, if you want to schedule an appointment, give me a call, send me an email. And I do therapy from nine to six, Monday through Thursday. Uh, <laughs> been doing it for many years, uh, 65,000 therapy sessions. Some, and so I'm still enjoying it immensely. And, and it puts a smile on my face, and there's a lot of laughter, a lot of tears that go on, and I like living a life of laughter and tears. Well, thank you very much, and um, really grateful that you're here with us on the planet, and grateful that I can share you with as many people as possible. And I'll have Penny reach out to you to see when we can schedule a continuation. I, I have a feeling that uh, if you're willing, you and I could have an ongoing series of podcasts that would really not only help a lot of people, but uh, hopefully put people in your classes and get them reading your books and, and booking therapy sessions with you because it's clear that you're uh, capable of helping people from a wide variety of, of vantage points and challenges. And I think that's very important. I would love that, Paul. This has been, a, this has been great fun talking with you yes thank you me too all right well everybody i hope you enjoyed keith witt lots of love you've got lots to ponder and digest and you got some great resources and some great opportunities ahead of you and hopefully now you realize that the pain that comes with love is part of the growth process and you can embrace it and grow in love and when you grow yourself you grow the world so until next time thank you Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dr. Keith Witt. Visit Dr. Witt's website at drkeithwitt.com. That's Witt with two T's, where you can sign up for a free download of his book, The Attuned Family, plus a free weekly program of videos, written materials, and suggestions to help you love better. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and at the Czech Institute's new streaming site at chikiva.com. Music